Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Greetings, listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Is it tuning in on a podcast? I suppose it's it's. We have a video. We have a video component as well, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, even then, it goes it goes back to like the actual tuner on your radio dial in like the 30s. So I, I like to think of us as the spiritual successor to FDR's fireside chats. <laughs> a breathless nation uh, awaits uh, to learn that the only thing to fear is fear itself, and I never really uh, understood what that meant. Uh, but unfortunately, good. I think Sixers fans have more to fear than fear itself right now. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we do that, I just want to thank everyone who subscribed recently. We got a ton of new people on the free trial, and I hope you're taking advantage of every single thing that Dunked on Prime has to offer. In addition to this, I'll be doing a chat on Tuesday morning. Is that 11 or 10? I should probably know the answer to that if I'm going to actually show up. 11 Pacific time on Tuesday, February 6th in our Discord. If you haven't joined the Discord yet and you're a new member, I highly suggest getting in there. It is in your emails. If you're not getting that, uh, check your spam folder. But in addition to getting Dan Feldman's Daily Dunks uh, in email form, you also get the link to the Discord and our cap sheets and our free agent rankings, which I also think are quite apropos around this time. So hope we can earn your business here on Dunktown Prime. We've really been tremendously encouraged by the number of people who have signed up and we hope to keep you guys in the fold yeah joel Embiid is going to go under the knife in some form or fashion and it may not be just total disaster yet because there's a possibility that he could come back but this obviously just a massive blow for a guy who was having one of the best seasons in nba history for this sad news a dominant overall season for Joel Embiid. And we don't know for sure if that season is over. And for those who are less familiar with meniscus injuries, a lot of times what happens here is the surgeon goes in, sees the condition of the meniscus. I believe in this case, it's the left lateral and makes an evaluation at that juncture of what sort of procedure to do. There are less invasive ones and more invasive ones. And so once that procedure happens, I would guess it will be early this coming week. Then we will get a more definitive timeline on Joel Embiid's availability moving forward and whether this is more of like a I'm remembering it as like six to eight versus six to eight week versus four to six month distinction, depending. And maybe there's some sort of middle ground, but it seems like the best case scenarios are off the board now. They may have looked at that for a couple of days. And yeah, just a couple of points on on we're not doing a postmortem on Joel Embiid season because we don't know if it is yet done. But Embiid averaging 35 points a game, 11 rebounds a game, almost six assists per game, which is by far a career high ridiculous league leading 34 per 65 percent true shooting on a league leading 39 usage and he's been incredible i mean he's also having the best defensive year of his career and that's a part of why he is the the 
permitted MVP right now. Unfortunately, he almost definitely would not be the MVP MVP. Yeah, and also, of course, one of only two players to average more than one point per minute played with Wilt's 1962 season. The other one, and getting back to the surgery, there had been some hope maybe as they were evaluating the treatment options, and he had a small tear in the meniscus in his right knee. In the playoffs, he played on it, apparently, as far as we know, avoided surgery for that, and he was certainly hampered by that issue. And there's a thought maybe that if the swelling goes down, maybe it's not so bad and you can work through it, try to rehab it and manage at least to the end of the season. And there are a lot of guys who have things that are going to show up in an MRI like a meniscus tear, but it seems like the evaluation, there may have been a couple of components to it. Number one was, let's say he attempted to rehab it and two or three weeks from now, it didn't work. Well, now if you have the surgery and you remove this, what has been called a loose flap in the ridiculous parlance that's been thrown around at the behest of, I guess, the team and the agents and whatever. uh, But we're we're here to help you guys uh, break through that and (laughs) figure out exactly what's going on. Like he's having a surgery. It's not a procedure. Uh, So the problem is if you try to rehab it for two, three weeks and it doesn't work, then you have that portion of the meniscus removed six to eight weeks. Well, now you're into the playoffs and your season's over. So the timeline here, they... That may have eliminated that possible option. The other possibility, though, is just that he had the MRI and they got a bunch of opinions and the opinions were, hey, just you got to have the surgery now. This is a bad enough tear that you don't have any option other than this. So then, of course, as you alluded to, at age 30, Embiid will go under the knife with the arthroscope. The surgeon will get in there and determine the exact location of the tear and its nature, which is really hard to tell on imaging. You don't really get a still a full 3D image. A an MRI is like a number of cross sections. So it's hard to tell exactly the nature of the tear and whether it can, in fact, be stitched back together. Some of that is just the shape of the tear. Some of it is the location. The latter, if it's more medial towards the middle of the knee, then there's less blood supply there. And so you're less, the further in it is, the less you are able to do the repair. Another component of this, though, we've seen a lot of guys who have had repairs, Derek Rose, Russell Westbrook, get that done early in their career. Guys who are in their 20s, early 20s, even. Joel Beat is 30. And this is all, he's having an amazing season. And this is one of his big chances. How does that affect the decision of whether to do the repair, which does have a better long-term outcome, but the long-term is not as long as if he were in his 20s versus in the short term, you have a better outcome. You're able to come back quicker if you remove that irritating patch of the torn meniscus and you can get back and play, but you're just more likely to develop swelling and arthritis later in your career. So it's really, it's going to be a very, very difficult decision. And particularly because this is a decision that needs to be made while Joel Embiid is not going to be conscious right like he's uh, i'm pretty sure that's uh, that they put you out for that surgery uh and he'll at least be on some pretty serious drugs if if he's not so this is uh where they're gonna have to kind of like make this decision ahead of time and then we'll find out after the surgery whether it's uh, he's done for the year and it's four to six months recovery or whether there's still a possibility six to eight weeks that he could be back of course eight weeks uh, would be beginning of april he would have maybe 
a week or two to get back into it. The Sixers, without him for the intervening time, could well be in the play and mix. They built up a decent cushion, but not an amazing one. And Indiana, Miami, like those teams have fortified themselves. Cleveland, New York, there, those teams are all looking pretty good so far of late. So they could maybe be even in the plan, which would accelerate the timetable even more for him. So even if he is able to come back, it's hard to imagine he's not a guy who like keeps himself or stays in great shape as well when his conditioning is down. So the idea that he could come back and dominate at the same level as he has for a guy who just hasn't shown the ability to do that in the playoffs anyway, in part, of course, due to this terrible injury luck, it's uh, it's possible. I'm not going to write it off, but I, I think I probably, Danny particularly given his size too and how well that could age and his skill level. I think if it's kind of a borderline case, I think that he should just go ahead and get the repair and be done for the season. I do too. And a small note and then some bigger ones. Um, MB technically isn't 30 now. He turns 30 during the recovery from the surgery. It's mid-March of this year. Yeah. But functionally, it's about the same. And right. for the season so far, the Sixers are 30 and 18. But unfortunately for them, they are 4 and 10 so far in games that Joel Embiid has not played. And so whether that sample is more relevant or if an extended absence gives Nick Nurse the ability to try some other things if they want to, not that I'm suggesting it, Daryl Morey can fortify the center position at the trade deadline because we're still a few days away from that. But if we're thinking about what the Sixers are now, because remember, we talked a lot before the season started about how they were shorthanded, maybe a little bit under talented. And while they have exceeded that, a big part of why they have exceeded that prognostication is because of Joel Embiid playing at an MVP level. And so replacing him and his role within the offense is going to be very difficult. And then replacing his role within the defense might even be harder just because he's done so well this year. It's been an a less a less sung part of his success so far. So as we're recording this overall for the full season, the Sixers 30 and 18 plus 5.7 clean the glass differential. And so if they play like a below 500 team for the duration of this, whatever that duration, well, I mean that for 35 games or so, that's going, that's going to put a lot of teams into range for you. That's going to, I think that's going to put them more into the play and mix. They've already lost some games without Embiid. And if it's just to like come in, I mean, it, it would be so bizarre if we ended up getting that Bucks Sixers series that we've wanted so badly as a as a seven two. Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, now are, is Philly even without Embiid? Are they gonna? <laughs> I mean, hopefully Embiid would be there at that point. But yeah, I hopefully mean, they even get out of the play in. Potentially a, not. Yeah, my my thought was more maybe he would he would come back and then at that point they can like yeah. win the play in and then they would they would theoretically face. Well, let's say the Bucks in the center. There are a lot of teams that are close there. So terrible news for the Sixers. We'll know more about the timeline for it. And but a this little, is not- little more on their on their performance too. I mean, so they now basically have one guy who can create. That's Tyrese Max. They don't they never had a backup point guard of any note. And even some of these other guys, like Melton's still out with this back issue. And Nick Batum is not someone who can play a ton of minutes and he's not really a creator anyway. And yeah, he he's his use as a complimentary piece is now actually lower utility because you don't have the guy drawing the attention in the first place. Yeah, and Tobias Harris, you know, I don't know how much more he can ramp up his scoring, <clears throat> maybe a little bit, 
but probably not his creation. And now the question, of course, comes to Daryl Morey. That's what Mark Steiner reported, that they would still be active in the buyout market. Well, yeah, wouldn't anybody uh, at this point? Yeah, and, but, and and the Sixers aren't second apron teams, so they could theoretically yeah. be a buyout destination for Philly product Kyle Lowry, among others. Yeah, but the, does Daryl Morey say, well, hey, we still have a chance to win a championship now with this Joel injury. So are we going to try to fortify it? Would we go after someone like DeMar DeRozan in the trade market and potentially try to re-sign him? Or is this an impetus to say like, you know what? Now let's just go into the offseason with our cap space that can facilitate trades, even if we can't necessarily sign somebody. We don't want to give up any of our assets for guys just to help us this year, unless we think they're going to be a big part of what we're doing going forward. And it's easier to get them now. So we're going to just kind of, if not punt on this year, we're not going to do anything other than trade second round picks and try to get guys on the buyout market. And of course, by, I mean, that's maybe even another reason why this surgery, having it happen now and getting some clarity over the coming days would be useful. And well, and I guess we, yeah. On the front of funding, just a stray note, it would not surprise me in the least if Philadelphia ends up ducking the luxury tax this year. If they can make it, if they can find a home for a Furkan Korkmaz, or you do like a Marcus Morris trade where you take on, you know, that is legal within the matching rules, but you save enough to get under, then that's a lot more palatable when your your sacrifice is there. And and one just important note for me is that, and this came up a lot last year, and yes, the Lakers and the Heat both made it a long way out of the play-in. It is exceedingly hard to make much less win an NBA championship as out of the seven or eight seed. And the six seed isn't much easier either. And so for Philly, the even the argument where we're the best, we're, you know, like we're better than our seed, which I would wholeheartedly agree with if Embiid is available. Then not only with his return from in, his return from injury, but being the visit, the trailing team and every, but being the like the not having home court in every single series. That's a lot to overcome for anyone. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Now, the last thing before we move on. Did Joel suffer this injury against the Warriors when Jonathan Kuminga fell onto his leg did that irritate some pre-existing issue enough or or just like that was messed up and then they decided to get the mri and they discovered this meniscus tear that happened earlier they didn't know was there before it's not necessarily having someone like fall on your knee when you're prone a 
typical injury mechanism for a meniscal tear. So I'm not sure what to make of like, was that because he was out there that night? Like, did this happen? Did it happen before? Or did it just irritate it? And then they found it later. Hard to say. He certainly looked extremely limited out there beforehand. And maybe this was always going to happen, but, and we'll never know for sure, but certainly to have him get so roundly criticized that, because remember he fell on it in a weird way at the end of the Indiana game, right? And then he doesn't play because he can't jump at all trying to warm up for Denver. And then he comes back in school and say, so maybe this happened in the Indiana game. Who knows, right? Like an MRI, you don't get an MRI after every game. Like there has to be kind of a reason for it. Anytime you miss a game due to knee soreness, you're not going to get an MRI. It has to be kind of more persistent. And this is something that though had been bothering him for over a month now. And he had already missed, I think, five games in a row before this. But nonetheless, maybe it caused it, maybe it didn't. But all the criticism that he got after the Denver game and then being out there on one leg against Golden State eventually... And still being in the game late. Yeah, yeah, still being in the game. It was, you know, it was a 10-point game. It wasn't crazy to have him out there. Uh, But I definitely think, given the way he was moving and, like, the way his knee buckled on that one rim protection play, that the training staff at that point, and, you know, maybe they were disempowered, right? And Joel just really wanted to be out there. And I think Joel deserves some blame here, too, for being a little bit too worried about the external narrative, even when it is about, like, well, hey, it's... If I, how I'm going to be remembered is dependent on like MVPs and championships, like even worrying about how you're going to be remembered as opposed to like just trying to win your team a championship. Like he deserves some blame there. The organization, the medical staff deserves some blame for this. The NBA and this asinine 65 game rule, putting that external pressure on him deserves some blame here. And I would say the media as well for the reaction to his not playing in Denver, which again, like, should he be listening to the media? No, he shouldn't be, but he obviously does. And, you know, that sort of criticism shapes what the fans think. And of course, uh, uh, in the end, the fans are the ones who determine everything uh, about this league directly or indirectly it, i think that was the the narrative that emerged out of him missing the denver game i think was also really a failure and i and, you know i'm guilty of it too like i you know it's a little snarky particularly with the whole injury reporting thing that's another thing that the organization really screwed up and just ended up having their guy look bad but joel was also pushing that aspect as well so all of these factors came together into a really toxic mix in the end and it would appear the result is that Joel Embiid may not play again this season yeah and that's definitely unfortunate and another player not quite the same level of star who won't play again this year is Zach Levine Zach Levine has been battling foot and ankle issues seemingly all year and it appears that Levine, along with his representation, after seeking medical opinions, decided to undergo surgery on his right foot. This likely, though I wouldn't say definitively, takes him out of trade consideration for almost everybody because he's not helping you at all this year. But Levine is under contract for for many more years, and it you know it's it's unfortunate for Levine. It is another complication in his career. Twenty eight years old at this point, so unfortunate to be sure. Yeah, this is another one where people uh, had a lot of snark about him getting shut down with this foot issue. He later clarified that it was a, a fifth metatarsal issue and also his stance correctly that you don't want to mess around with that area. Of course, you know, Kevin Durant had surgery there, ended up missing a whole season. Zion ended up missing a whole season uh, with the, that issue as well, though it's unclear whether Zion actually had the surgery or not. Actually, I mean, there's been so many Zion injuries, I can't remember anymore at this point. Uh 
we, I think they never told us whether he actually had <laughs> surgery or not in the offseason was, was what it was. But yeah, this is, you know, not clear if this is like a Jones fracture. Is it you know, some kind of like a bone bruise irritation? Like may, maybe there's been some sort of like a, a growth there that's really bothering him. It, whatever it is, he's going to have this surgery now on that fifth metatarsal. Uh, seemed to have re-aggravated it when he suffered an ankle injury. That That's what happened to Kevin Durant as well. And so, yeah, there was only one team that was reported to be interested in him, the Pistons. It really doesn't make any sense, I would say, for them to trade for him now as opposed to in the offseason when, in theory, he can prove the, that he's healthy again. I don't know that the price. And for the Bulls, there's not really much reason for them to trade him right now at an absolute nadir either. And I, it, I, think, they're not, I, yeah. I think the Pistons should consider it if they were considering it before. I don't think they should in the first place. But if they are, then because this is presumably in pursuit of them not having the worst record in league history, which I don't think they're they're in danger just because everyone who's this bad is. But I think they'll yeah. be I think they, they'll they be got okay six there. wins. They should be OK. Yeah, they should be fine. And then Levine, uh, just for posterity after this year, owed eighty nine million over two seasons and, and then has a player option worth forty nine million dollars. I think that. he might pick up that player option, Danny. looking looking unfortunately pretty likely there and so for the bulls that likely means that part of the can is getting kicked down the road and we will we'll see what he looks like next year for the bulls and we'll eventually find out who is still on the bulls at that point yeah for the bulls and their prospects the rest of the season levine didn't really figure in the positive this year and had he come back it didn't seem like he was helping them a ton maybe if he had come back at his best perhaps the fact that he's having this surgery and that he missed a bunch of time might give him more of a pass for the way he played this year in addition of course to the fact that he wanted out of there i mean i'm not gonna say oh he's having the surgery because it looked like he was going to be traded and so he wants to be ready to play for his new team or something like that that seems it seems like it's better to not have the surgery if you want to get traded than to have the surgery but maybe there's a feeling that he could have played through it he did play through it by the way uh, when he was about to be a free agent uh, back in the 2021 or sorry 2022 season but so does this change anything for the bulls as far as being willing to move caruso or DeRozan? i wouldn't necessarily think so there's a, a feeling like oh well let's let's trade levine first and see what we can get for him and then we'll evaluate everything else and maybe that changes that thinking i for this particular franchise i would guess probably not though yeah i, th- I think you're probably right have you ever brought your magic to walt disney world like hey we came to play did you tip your tiara to a creole princess or get goofy officially step up like a boss and save the day or see what life's like under the tree of life did you if you could would you when we come through it's true magic because we came to play bring the magic at walt disney world resort at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. 
Are we ready to start the 1560 proper? Let's do it. Yeah, let's begin at the bottom of the alphabet with the Utah Jazz, uh, who just had a stirring comeback against the Milwaukee Bucks uh, in a game we did for the NBA strategy stream on NBA League Pass. That win pushed them up to 25 and 26. They are four and six since the last 15 and 60. Queen the Glass has them at a negative 2.8 net rating. That is 23rd in the NBA, but they're 15th in offense and an unfortunate 25th in defense. ESPN's BPI projections have the Jazz falling just outside the play-in at 40 and 42 and give them a 17% chance of making the final eight. Yeah, and the and Jazz. One, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. And one other note from John Schumann of NBA.com. This has changed a little bit, so that I think Schumann's piece came out on Friday. Uh, going into then, the Jazz had the second biggest home road differential in terms of winning percentage and the largest in terms of point differential per 100 possessions. And that, you know, they get, ended up getting a big home win, not one that we expected, on Sunday against the Bucks. Well, I, I actually... Oh, given yeah, the circumstances, game, I would have expected it. Yeah, yeah, given the circumstances, I may actually have, have favored Utah with Milwaukee coming in off a big comeback win where they expended a lot of energy in Dallas. No Chris Middleton for the second night of the back-to-back. He played 38 minutes last night, and Brooke Lopez was out for personal reasons. They started Bobby Portis, and Giannis and Dame both played, although Dame was questionable coming in with a, a left ankle injury and appeared to tweak it on a dunk over Walker Kessler at the end of the third and, and really didn't have it throughout most uh, of this one, struggling to 518, one of eight uh, from downtown. If he had been in better shape physically, I, I think the, this outcome may have been a little bit different. I think the way I want to tell the story of this from the Jazz perspective, though, is to discuss what took place in the second and fourth quarter. Second quarter, 37 to 21 Milwaukee. They begin it with a 19 2 run and they do it against the Jazz second unit of Olenek, Kessler, Clarkson, Abaji, and Keontae George. Keontae George really struggles in that stretch, had a couple of turnovers. They weren't really able to get in their offense. Giannis was everywhere. They didn't really have anyone to guard Giannis with that group at the start of the second quarter, and they couldn't score, and they were just getting killed by the Bucks. So we wondered on the stream, how was Will Hardy going to match up differently in those minutes with Giannis on the floor, Dame off at the start of the fourth quarter? He went to a decidedly different approach in that fourth quarter, and it's one that is extremely counterintuitive. So basically, in that lineup that was out there, you could argue that the worst two defenders for a Lillard Antetokounmpo pick and roll would be Kelly Olenek and Keontae George. Those were the two players in that matchup, and that allowed Walker Kessler to be more of a rover, protecting around the basket. And then Clarkson and whether it was Abaji or Fontecchio, I believe, or, or Lowry Markinen, who ended up playing a lot of the three later yeah. on in the game. Yeah, bringing to, Markinen in for Abaji to start the fourth was the other big adjustment he made uh, personnel-wise. Yeah. And, and that worked out extremely well, too. And it bedeviled the Bucks. It, they may have been partially bedeviled also by the cumulative fatigue and the altitude and everything else like that. But the Bucks, who had that 37-21 second quarter to establish a lead, then it was largely even in both the first and the third, which were starter dominated. It is then a 40 to 13 fourth quarter. A Doc Rivers team has a seemingly insurmountable lead, and then it is very surmounted by the by the end of it. And I'm not saying this is Doc's fault tactically, though there were some things that felt left on the table. And and so instead, it is the Jazz who come out victorious. 
Yeah, I want to go back to what Hardy did there. Putting Olenek on Giannis, they had matched up Markkanen with him and John Collins with their starting group, which actually performed relatively well in the game. But just getting the additional size of Markkanen and Kessler on the floor and kind of just saying, yeah, we're going to switch an Olenek Giannis pick and roll. I think also he correctly deduced, or, I'm sorry, sorry, Dame Giannis pick and roll with Olenek and Keontae George. I think Hardy also directly deduced that, correctly deduced, although most deductions are are, are direct, that Dame Lillard didn't really have it in isolation. And so him trying to attack Kelly Olenek with two seven footers on the floor behind Kelly Olenek wasn't necessarily something that would work that well. And then when they got the ball into the post to Giannis guarded by Keontae George, they just double teamed and they tried to play out of that and they gave up some corner threes, which the Bucks missed. But overall, it was really pretty good defense by them. The other thing that the Bucks had going early in the second quarter was Bobby Portis going crazy, posting up Lowry Markkinen. And we're like, all right, well, how is Will Hardy going to deal with this? Because that probably wasn't at the top of his scouting report of like, how are we going to deal with Bobby Portis posting up another seven footer? And he just decided to stick with that matchup. Uh, and part of that also was putting Walker Kessler on Portis and moving Markkinen into the three rather than having him guard Portis. But he do- they weren't going to double team Bobby Portis and he just kind of cooled off naturally in the second half. On Well, and, and also the nature of Portis's touches changed. He was more like a uh, uh, an outlet for those double teams rather than they weren't giving him the ball as much because Giannis was producing doubles, and so yeah. they were they were getting something there. And I'm happy you brought up Portis. That was another another key threat of the game. Also, Keontae George hitting catch and shoot threes. That was not something he did yeah. very well earlier in this season. Not something he was ever asked to do. At Baylor ended up being five of nine. I believe an outright majority of those were of the catch and shoot variety. Yeah. He had three left corner threes just to, in the second half. And that's actually another thing to talk about too, what they did offensively yes. where the Bucks really were causing probably thought the Bucks had one of their best defensive quarters of the season in the that 37 to 21 second quarter and they started running everything through Kelly Olenek again and Kelly Olenek was a game bust plus 24 in a game in which he was two of five from the field he did have six assists and so they got the Olenek the ball at the elbow and they ran a lot of interesting screening action they would set a back screen for marketing kind of stealing from what the Denver Nuggets like to do for Aaron Gordon but marketing is even bigger than Aaron Gordon and with Dame Lillard's man and the the Bucks had to react to that cut to the basket by Markkinen. They got a, a couple of nice dimes. Uh, Clarkson got a backdoor moving off the ball, and they just ran actions with Olenek at the elbow, looking to make passes off a of screening action over and over again, and the Bucks got fatigued enough. The Bucks were doing a lot of switching, and I thought that was really a good way to combat that, getting Giannis out on the perimeter, getting size mismatches, cutting to the basket, where it's not just a straight post up, but it's just a guy ducking in or cutting against a guy who's a foot shorter than him, and a great passer setting him up and that was a huge part of it to the point where during the competitive portion of the fourth quarter the jazz took 12 shots at the rim which is a ton of shots at the rim for any quarter but that was more shots at the rim than they took the entire rest of the game and showed you how well the offense was working running through a Linux in that fourth quarter there was also a dramatic shift over the game where at first the jazz took i think 11 of their first 13 shots were threes and then that you know they still took 44 in the game but they eventually got more balanced and the other thread that I wanted to pull on the Jazz offense was something that has been relevant for the Bucks all year, which is 
point of attack defense. And so the actions involving Olenek were one way that they were able to generate an advantage. Another one was just Jordan Clarkson beating his man and finding somebody. There were a couple of good plays for Walker Kessler. It started memorably with a play where Walker Kessler was open for a lot, but Clarkson took the floater instead. And then Clarkson found Kessler, I think, three times for nice finishes. And that was what those were some of Clarkson's five assists. He only turned the ball over once. And so when you're yeah, the, in that vein, they also had Markinen working on the weak side a lot yes. with those attacks. And so Jay Crowder, who's a good help defender, would go to help out. And then you just throw it to the weak side. And there's no way you can close out on Markinen at seven foot. And he had a bunch of threes from the left side in the second half also. I think that's about all I had on the game. Anything more that you think is essential? Yeah, just a Keontae George the way that he settled down in the second half. And that'll happen with rookies. He was so bad. I thought he was probably the biggest reason that they struggled so badly in that 19 to two run that put them down double figures. And they were down double figures for more than two straight quarters after that. And I think a lot of coaches, if you're really trying to win the game, would have been like, all right, you know, we're just not going to play Keontae George in the second half. We'll bring in Clarkson. Uh, We'll play Chris Dunn a little bit more. Chris Dunn was awesome defensively, but also you saw his limitations on the offensive end with, with him passing up Jatsu, he was 0 of 3 from 3. There were a couple like transition plays where the ball found out the arc and he didn't want to take it, but he was just plastered to Lillard. He just could not be screened off uh, in any kind of pick and roll situation. So he's still one of the best on ball defensive guards, but he was causing them problems uh, on the offensive end. And you know, maybe he would have just played Sexton, Clarkson, and not gone to George very much not gone done as much and instead you know he went back to Keontae George and George delivered pretty well he really is a a big fan of the combinations that he is painstakingly put together of you know backcourt combinations frontcourt combinations Olenek working with uh Kessler so that they have more playmaking and spacing like that's a really good combination that he likes and so Markin is kind of the guy who can fit into any of these lineups but it's kind of Olenek Kessler George Clarkson and then Sexton Dunn Fontecchio Collins are sort of like these two different four-man groups and then marketing can fit into either of those mm-hmm. and let's see if I had anything else yeah there's a little altercation between Colin Sexton and Malik Beasley and a lot of people were calling for Beasley to get thrown out like Sexton elbowed Giannis who went down on a drive Sexton was very excited about that and was kind of preening and Malik Beasley under the guise of just running over the other side of the floor to run down the floor he just kind of checked Colin Sexton and Sexton had a hilarious reaction he got hit was surprised then realized he'd gotten hit allowed his knees to completely buckle fell to the ground like a wet noodle and then after flopping got up and got in Beasley's face and it ended up being double tech tools I was glad that's what it was I was glad that they did not throw out uh, Malik Beasley for that one wholeheartedly agree it wasn't it wasn't necessary that though it did seem like it was a technical a technical was appropriate have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. 
If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths. And where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. The San Antonio Spurs are now 10 and 40. We'll be doing their game for the NBA strategy stream on Wednesday night against Miami, but a sterling relative to them. Actually, no, is that right? Yeah, they have a 25 winning percentage over their last 12 as opposed to a 20% winning percentage on, on the season, but three and nine since we last checked in on them. Negative 8.5 net rating is somehow there are four teams worse than them. 27th on offense, moving up to 23rd on defense. A lot of that has coincided with uh, Victor Wembanyama's emergence. They still project for 17 wins, which would be 15th in the West. And the Spurs are going to be on the road most of February, the old rodeo trip. 9 of 12 on the road. So they're actually playing 9 straight on the road, although they will get the all-star break in between. But as we noted, their defense has been much improved of late. And Victor Wembanyama, let's dig a little bit more into his rim protection stats. I tasked our not nosher-in-chief, Seth Partno, to... How how am I not the nosher-in-chief? Maybe I do more than nosh. I, I'm like the the uh, devourer-in-chief or something. Yeah. I was just thinking because he writes the nerd nosh. I wasn't thinking well, about yes, it. Well, yes, yes. I, I just... I, I'm just it's it's funny that the one person uh who at uh dunked on prime who has something named after eating is Seth, not me. I guess the brand isn't strong enough. But um <laughs> so I asked I asked Seth to pull some specific numbers. Um he does great great data on a variety of different things, but um one of my favorites is is rim protection stuff, even I mean for me, going back to Seth's days with Nylon Calculus. And so you like I we we don't have the you and I don't have the capacity to generate splits, but Seth does, and so I tasked him with, well, how has it looked in terms of Wembenyama's rim protection numbers since he took over at center? I used December seventh as the proxy for that. That was the first game where Wembenyama started at center. I believe it was Collins was hurt, and then eventually he came back and was a backup. It was something like that, and since then, and all these stats are rate adjusted, so it's not like it's a it's a total tally. Um, point saved per 100 is the stat that we're going to use here. And centers overall average. Well, and, and look, two- can we just explain how, how that's calculated a little bit Go more? Go ahead. It's basically looking at a combination of how much you reduce opponent rim activity, shots at the rim, just the when you're on the floor, how many fewer shots at the rim does the opponent shoot? And then also, how many are you directly challenging and what is the effect of those challenges? How much do you reduce opponent field goal percentage? So one is based on just shots at the rim when you're on the floor off and the other one is based on the tracking data actually showing what happens when you are within five feet of someone shooting at the rim and how often are you within five feet of someone shooting at the rim so that's that that last metric is contest percentage so that for those of you who are new to this that's how uh, these numbers are calculated and certainly i think the best numbers in the public sphere for measuring how well players protect the rim according to seth seth stats the centers and positional definitions can be a little funky here average 2.6 points saved per 100 possessions 
And before the change, so the first month and a half of the year, Wembenyama was at 2.9 points saved per 100 possessions. So still better than the average center, and he's only playing center a portion of the time. But after he's basically exclusively a center or pretty dang close, Wembenyama has been averaging 4.6 points saved per 100. And to put that in full context or fuller context, that is between Rudy Gobert, who's at 4.5, a little bit worse than what Wembenyama's at, and Brooke Lopez, who is at 5.0. And so I asked Seth, just as, you know, stats fluency, if it would be fair to say, based on these numbers, that after the change, Wembenyama's been roughly as good a rim protector as Gobert has been over the full season, and his answer was yes. So that is me interpreting the stats correctly. And for those who are interested, if you were to extrapolate out that 4.6, the point save that Wembenyama has had for the full season, it would be seventh in the NBA. And it's a, a notable group that he would be just behind. Walker Kessler is at 7.2. So that's preposterous. And there's some sample size issues and everything else with Kessler. Yeah, And also the fact that he plays almost exclusively against backups. Exactly. Then Avisa Zubats, Chet Holmgren, Joel Embiid, all of them are over five points saved per hundred possessions. And then the players between 4.5 and five includes Brook Lopez, Nick Claxton, Wembenyama, and Rudy Gobert. And then there are a few others behind some of the usual lights like Anthony Davis and all that are really close. Um, Nate, I included, if if you want to delve into any of them, some of the guys who are up in that range of points per 100 but are way below what I would consider a relevant minutes threshold. Any of them that interest you? You know, Zeke Naji being up there is kind of funny because that's like he's supposed to be more of a switch guy. That's one where I think the, the sample is probably too small. Uh, but that was one that stuck out to me as being kind of interesting. And potentially as a sales pitch for the Magic or otherwise, Jonathan Isaac being there. And I've loved the yeah. Isaac. Now, that mode. one doesn't surprise me at all. No, it's it's not surprising, but it's 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 notable because, I mean, that that is part of the theory of Jonathan Isaac as a player is that he is one of the league's better defensive players. And I mean, when you add in the defensive playmaking that he provides, which is not uniform for this group. But beyond the obvious, like Wembenyama doing really well as a rim protector, as a rookie, and, you know, he's still still a young dude. One of the elements that's, that really stands out to me as being significant about these numbers is how it combines with Wembenyama's capacity as a switch and or weak side defender. And so we're getting closer to enough data, you know, I, I'd like to see more, obviously, to show that he can be a standalone room protector. But part of what makes Wembenyama so special as defender, paralleling Anthony Davis and a few others, is that he can still do other things depending on the teammates. So since I started watching film on Wembenyama, and incidentally, actually, probably when I watched him in person back in, in Dunkirk and in Paris, the dream was that he could be not only a great standalone rim protector, but that he could also be scheme versatile. And that has always been the weird deficiency with Bam Adebayo, as great a defender as he is, is that he's not he's not great at the traditional stuff. He's great at everything else. And he's so great at that that the rim protection doesn't matter as much. And Draymond is probably the closest we've had in the modern era to a perfect to a perfect scheme fit whatever your scheme is going to be and so for Wembenyama as a rookie to kind of have part to have one of the hardest parts of this potentially squared away which makes sense given his massive personal size it's incredibly encouraging yeah and I you know would it be nice to be able to play Wembenyama next to another center at times yeah I think it would be we've seen that putting more size on the floor can really help I think though playing center helps his offensive game it does. Really as much because if he's being guarded by the opposing team center, now that face up off the dribble stuff works a lot better if he has the quickness and skill advantage. And then also, 
it works a lot better if you're not just switching all his pick and rolls and then he can be a role man get behind the defense and they're starting to get better although they could still improve even more at finding him around the rim and he's also if he's faster than the guy who's guarding him he actually makes a lot of nice off-ball cuts too not only as a role man but coming off screens going back door and again with his massive catch radius the largest in in nba history he's got great hands uh, as well and some of the stuff that he can alley-oop or just kind of tip in over his head when he's not even facing the rim when he catches it is impressive the last number we can close with on him you mentioned december 7th as that date when he really started playing center much more often almost exclusively in fact and they have a 111.5 defensive rating when he's on the floor since that point there's eight points per 100 better when he's on the floor versus off and overall they're 8.4 points per 100 better so they're totally respectable when he's on the floor at a negative 1.4 net rating now also recall that a lot of this time he was on that minutes limit and i think that also has just allowed him to play better at center i think that's you don't want to say it's all center though because with him playing less i think he's really been motivated to make more of an impact but yeah when you look at we talked about this even about a month ago of how much his contest percentage had changed going from like 20 percent to 40 percent basically uh once he moved to the center position and since he's got a eight foot wingspan and like a you know almost uh 10 foot standing reach might be a good idea to have him close to the basket as we talked about so the spurs have really with him on the floor have been quite respectable of late we can shift to all-star Stubbsville, according to some people sacramento where the kings are 29 and 19 six and three since the last 15 and 60 slightly positive net rating 0.2 is 16th in the nba they're 13th in offense which is worse than you'd expect and they're 18th on defense which is probably a little bit better uh, BPI yeah. st- still skeptical has them as the seven seed. And a part of that is because Sacramento, as we're recording this podcast, is outperforming their point differential, not only by the most in the NBA, but by almost a full win over every single other team. Which is interesting because De'Aaron Fox is actually not having a very good statistical clutch season. And yet uh, the Kings, I, I mean, what it really comes down to is just that they've managed to get blown out a lot in some of their losses, particularly whenever they play the Pels. And they, they've had some pretty good close wins, uh, including over Golden State. The snub for the All-Star with Sabonis and Fox, I, as I noted, did not have Sabonis as that serious a, of a candidate. I didn't think he was really dominating offensively enough as a scorer. Turns it over a, a fair amount. And yeah, he's having a huge assist season, to be sure. But that's also, uh, and so he's better passing in the high post. And he can still mash some, but I think his post-up game has waned even more than it had previously fox to me would have been the candidate he's fallen off a little bit recently he probably would have made my team no actually i'm sorry i had him as my last cut uh he was right up there with seth curry the good the guard spots are really hard and and remember that like there are different criteria here and if you like if if part of your what you're considering for all nba is like how good a player they've been over the years which i think is completely valid it's called the all-star game it's not called the best players of the first half of the season game then players like steph and i think this was a huge omission with jimmy butler in the east like they're they're the west is it's still daunting as a guard and as great as De'Aaron fox has been like he's he'll get all nba consideration for me but that doesn't mean he deserved being an all-star and the kings are fifth in the west right now and i think that was a how could the fifth team in the west not have an all-star but as you noted they haven't really been playing incredibly well so far this season like they've had some good luck in close games 
And but yeah, for Phoenix and the Lakers, two teams that are below them to get two all stars and for the Kings to get none, uh, maybe that rankles a little bit. But no, I'm sorry. DeMontis Sabonis is not a better player than LeBron James or Anthony Davis or Devin Booker or Kevin Durant. Like full stop. Fox, you know, maybe you have an argument that he's statistically been better than some of those guys this year, but uh, which I don't think you necessarily have with Sabonis unless you're looking at points, rebounds, and assists. Anyway, this is not what Kings fans want to hear. Sorry, Kings fans who tuned in for this segment to hear us uh obviously you're going to want to support your guys for all-star we understand that and i thought uh sabonis and uh fox are both very deserving all-stars a year ago and fox uh, definitely was right in consideration for me what do you think though uh, about their potential to make a trade because I, I think it seems like the king's own front office there's been reporting on this notes that they acknowledge that they're maybe a little lucky to be where they are right now to be amazingly 10 games over 500 uh, at 29 and 19 so kind of uh, from a win-loss perspective actually like pretty much on pace to equal last year's uh 14 games over 500 performance and in fact they, i think they're ahead of where they were at this point last year by quite a bit one loss wise but if they are going to try to improve with the realization that they do owe a pick out there in 2024 lottery protected for kevin herter what are their realistic ways to upgrade given who we think might be available we got some reporting from jake fisher on over the weekend i think it was on late late on friday that of a couple of the players that the that the Kings might be interested in. And so it, it appears from Fisher's reporting that they are, are willing to trade Harrison Barnes in a deal for a forward, but really that would be for either Jeremy Grant or Kyle Kuzma and no one else. Like they wouldn't do it for a, a smaller player. And what or for a for a sorry, for a lesser forward is, is the way I should phrase it, not physically smaller. And they had been, you know, of course they'd registered interest in Pascal Siakam previously. That fell through. We talked about that at length when it when it reportedly happened. And the Kings have valued Kyle Kuzma for a really long time. Like they're they're they've pursued him at various moments in time, including it seems like it in the preliminary overture stage in free agency, which they ended up retaining Harrison Barnes in part because Kyle Kuzma decided to stay with the Wizards. I personally, as many know, I'm not the biggest Kyle Kuzma fan. And when specifically I I dislike the fit of Kuzma with the Kings yeah. because of Sabonis's limitations. And so to me, in an ideal world, one of the elements that a power forward on the Kings is going to have is the ability to be a weak side rim protector. And I'm not saying they need to go full like Jonathan Isaac there and have that be like the player's entire raison d'etre, but something like that would be useful. And yeah. Kyle Guzman that Now, is, do those, does that player who can also make a shot even exist? Not to mention whether they could trade for him or not. I mean, Oh, can they, can they know. trade for Miles Turner? Um, probably yeah. not. But the... Um, um, it, but so, but for me, Kuzma is a specifically bad fit. And like Jeremy Grant is a capable defender. That's not what he does well, but he's a capable defender. And Kuzma, what he does best offensively is specifically not valuable for the Kings in their starting five, which is he generates tough shots and he makes them at a respectable, though far from elite rate. And Sacramento wouldn't want him to rely on the offense. Now, you could say that scaling back his role could increase Kuzma's efficiency. Very possible. We haven't seen it in a while, but it's very possible. But I just think of him specifically as an awful fit. Yeah, I I mean, maybe he's a little bit better at moving his feet defensively than Barnes. I still don't think he's like better as a post guy. And now basically no one makes fewer plays defensively than Harrison Barnes in terms of like steals or blocks. But Kuzma isn't renowned there either. I, I do think that 
to me, I would not give up a first to swap Barnes for Kuzma. And quite frankly, they probably could have just, and they had the scratch to go get Kuzma and offer him more than the Wizards did in a contract last offseason. They didn't elect to do that. So so now Barnes is making less and his contract goes for a year less, but he's also a little bit older. I just, I see them as such similar players that giving up a first to make that upgrade is particularly if you're moving Barnes out, which you nearly would have to do, doesn't make a ton of sense to me. The last thing I wanted to say on their team is just the three-point shooting is probably the biggest reason the offense is disappointed. And Keegan Murray, he was over 40% last year. He's up to 37%. He started like the first month he was shooting like under 30%. We predicted that that would improve and it has, but the season-long numbers, the season-long numbers. Kevin Herter was over 40% last year and he's at 36% this year. Barnes is right at 40%. Again, Malik Monk is getting him up. He actually leads the team in three-point attempts uh, per 36 minutes. Fox also shooting 38%. Like that's a big improvement so they're still shooting it pretty well for three except for like the like deep support guys those guys are struggling and they've been trying to cobble together uh, maybe their eighth and ninth rotation spots with duarte shooting 31 percent davion mitchell shooting 26 percent they've gone with keon ellis who actually is making more than you would expect at 38 percent hasn't played he's only played 342 minutes though so that's why their offense hasn't been quite at the same level as it was last year because they're just not quite as deadly from the three-point line but i would expect both herder and murray to shoot better i would expect fox and monk to probably shoot a little bit worse and so they'll probably end up about where they are and their defense has been better i think fox has been way better defensively this year keegan murray has been way better defensively this year so that's a reason why it's been respectable if they just were playing the same level offense as they did last year like they would be talking about being right up there probably in those top four seeds or so have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Let's go from Northern California to the Pacific Northwest with the Portland Trailblazers. 15 and 35, but once again, quite respectable five and six since we last checked in on them. They won the Dame Lillard return game on a beautiful floater by Anthony Simons, which he has uh, become quite expert at, that little floater or hook shot uh, in the last 30 seconds uh, of games. Still a negative 9.5 net rating, which is worse than the aforementioned Spurs, 27th in the NBA, 29th on offense, 24th on defense, and projecting for 25 wins, which would be 14th in the conference, eight ahead of the Spurs. And if you're, for those who are thinking about the bottom mix, that would put them per BPI in the fifth spot so the the worst the the best the worst record of everyone that isn't those bottom four teams though in terms of net rating the blazers are there um 
another piece of reporting from Jake Fisher. Portland has been consistent that it has no intention of moving Jeremy Grant per sources and rival personnel have been expressing increased skepticism that the Blazers will part with Malcolm Brogdon. We will find out in less than a week whether that is posturing, whether that is legit, but I will note that it is the with on the Brogdon perspective, it is the exact opposite of what the two of us said we would do during the Northwest trade deadline preview pot. But to continue going with the Blazers, I, I thought this was absolutely stunning. They were a fairly respectable six and eleven in January, so you know that's roughly one third of their games. But their cleaning the glass net rating in January was a negative fifteen point seven. That's worse than the NBA, despite three different teams, three other teams, only winning three games the entire month. So they won twice as many games, but had a worse net rating than everybody. And if for those of you who are wondering how that happens, well, the Blazers lost six different games by 20 points or more, including a 62-point loss to the Thunder and a 36-point loss to the Mavericks. And something you also see at times in cleaning the glass stats is because, remember, they filter out garbage time, is there are, there are incidences, and the Blazers are one of these, where their NBA.com net rating is actually better because garbage time was a regression to me and you know those guys tried a little bit harder that's a less relevant sample and so that's not great but the good news for the Portland Trailblazers is that there is at least a modest Scoot Henderson bounce back in progress even if it's not to like a star level so far he had a brutal start to the year four games in October with a total and 37% true shooting in that then 43% in five November games those obviously count but he was battling injuries or Leon and what we've seen since then is at least closer to not my dream of what I expected, but something more plausible. Scoot Henderson, 49% true shooting in both December and January, including a pretty respectable 34.5% on threes, taking about four per game. Uh, it is a massive concern that for the season, Scoot Henderson is barely above 40% on twos, but making about 80% of his free throws and the three-point numbers bouncing back up. He's he's over 30% on the season, but he's, you know, of course, better than that in the yeah. in the And that's encouraging. Game. Like, he's uh, you haven't seen him passing up shots. No, you haven't. And, and 5.2 threes per 36. Like that's a building block. You expect them to go in a little bit more than they have so far. But the the idea that he's I, yeah. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think, you know, well, I guess at least not in this latest stretch. Like I think 34 percent is actually. Oh, no, I'm talking about the number, I'm talking about the attempt rate. 5.2 ah, yeah, okay. like that I, I, i'm relatively cool with that and then so I, I those were all the stats for january because sometimes looking at it by month can be a little bit useful and then henderson played 37 minutes against the nuggets and had 30 points on 8 of 15 from the field and 11 to 12 from the line uh and his not full season but season so far numbers actually line up reasonably well or with what De'Aaron Fox did his rookie year. They're not the same type of player, but there are some similarities between those two. And something that Sam Vecini and I discussed, and you and I have discussed in Liverpool, which is what that, like these one and done point guards often have absolutely brutal rookie seasons because it's just such a huge change for them. And maybe we should have anticipated, and uh, and Sam and I talked about this a little bit, like that the, the G League Ignite might actually, because of who plays against the G League Ignite, like the rim, the, uh, fin- rim finishing numbers might actually be a little bit inflated. That's something we may need to incorporate in yeah. future years when G League and Night guys are relevant at the top of the class. But you know, I think so. So Scoot, brutal start. We need to, you know, it, it's indexed, but it's not the whole index, and work through it from that point, and we'll continue to build out the sample. Yeah. Now, of course, there have been a lot of rookie point guards who had forty-eight percent true shooting on over twenty percent usage 
uh, like Fox did, who didn't turn into all NBA players. Like oh yeah, Dennis Smith that same year was a uh, you know, pretty similar type of numbers. Uh, and also worth noting too that the league wide true shooting percentage got up quite a bit. So you'd probably need to be more in like the fifty one percent range now to equal what Fox was doing back in twenty seventeen. But I've started to see more wild plays for him as well, finishing at the basket, which is good. I think it, the way he's been eased along, playing some crunch time when he deserves it, not playing crunch time when he doesn't or he'll be playing when he's injured he's had a couple of 30 point games a couple of me really it was gunning quite a bit he's at least been able to create shots uh we can also follow up with this tidbit on the blazers that they still had the worst field goal percentage at the rim in january but they're at least a little bit closer to the median than they were previously when they were in like the mid 50s which is basically i think was the quote you had that like they're just going up against rudy gobert every game basically yes for, going for the entire go- 48 minutes for the entire 48 minutes no matter who their opponent is they're getting they're getting better than that which is good and they were they were actually basically tied with charlotte and closer to the median so they were actually last in offensive rating for January because they missed a ton of threes, but still, you know, in the finishing, a little bit of small progress there. And we can go to the the demons of the fourth quarter, the Phoenix Suns. They're 29 and 21 on the season, eight and three since the last 1560, including a win on Sunday over the Washington Wizards, 140 to 112. That helped them move up to ninth in net rating, plus 4.1 per hundred possessions, seventh on offense, 15th on defense. BPI projects them to finish with the sixth seed, 47 wins in the West. And I brought up the fourth quarter demon. I pulled the stats on it and I hadn't looked at them in a little while. The second worst net rating in the whole fourth quarter in the in the NBA right now is actually the Miami Heat, who somehow have a negative 10.7 net rating, but are, you know, but they're still over 500. The Phoenix Suns have a negative 16.3 fourth quarter net rating so far this year that's incredible yeah i think that's actually slightly improved but they had another just absolutely pathetic uh, collapse against orlando about a week ago but this road trip has been largely successful culminating in bradley beals season high 43 points he also had a 37 point game against the lakers Uh, they beat his old team the wizards where he got a nice ovation throughout the game now anything you do against the wizards probably should be taken with a, a bit of a grain of salt um the overall stats for Beal. Now he's played 25 games. Uh, he had a, a short period where he came back and then was injured again, but no, he's really been back since end of December. The thought was that he could move into more of a complimentary role. And when you look at his usage rate, he has 23% usage, but he actually has a worse true shooting percentage than he's had uh, throughout his career. Uh, he's right around 53%, I'm sorry, 55% true shooting. And he's taking a lot fewer threes, uh, and which you thought, all right, he's going to take a lot more spot-up threes. And he's essentially taken three spot-up jump shots per game, and he's 23 out of 67 on those, 51% true shooting on spot-up jumpers. Uh, he used to have one of the pure-looking jumpers. You know, his spot-up, to me, looks a little notchier. He's, he's not really someone who shoots on the move. He kind of gets his legs into his shot a lot and just averaging 17.1 points in 33 minutes also getting to the foul line quite a bit less uh, about 60 percent as often as he did his last year in Uh, washington 3.2 per 36 minutes would be the lowest of his career since those early years with the Wiz. 
Yeah, and that was one of the things he was really supposed to provide, that he was going to be a, a physical driver, get to the foul line for a team that doesn't do a ton of that. And so you're like, man, like with this guy's contract, it's, it goes on for so long, three years after this one, 35% of the salary cap, it, it's really going to be awful. And then you look at their overall net rating, plus 2.8 with Beal on the floor. That's actually worse than overall, which uh, he missed a bunch of time. There'd been time when Booker was out too. But here's the silver lining. With all three of these guys on the floor, they are absolutely destroying teams. There is, it would seem so far, and now a lot of that's because they're shooting unsustainably well. We'll get into that. But at least so far, there has been an alchemy with those three guys. Plus 16.4 net rating. One <laughs> 31 offensive rating, 115 on defense, which is uh, plenty good when you're playing at that best in the league type of level. The starting lineup it composes about two thirds of that time with the big three. That includes Grayson Allen and Yusuf Nurkic. And that group also uh, has been really good. 130.6 on offense, 117 on defense. Let's get into these shooting numbers. They are quite insane what they've been doing with all those guys on the floor. Unsustainable, perhaps, but we'll just give them to you. It's pretty incredible. And so, I mean, even though Beal and Booker are in that group of guys that we thought were going to be great three-point shooters in the pros, and they end up being successful in other ways, 43% on threes in the lineups were, were Beal, Booker, and Durant are all on the floor. 54% on long twos. Thank you to some of the toughest shot makers in the league. And the number that is really big, and this parallels some of the KD on the Warriors teams, 76% field goal percentage on shots at the rim. Yeah, they don't get there a ton. They're basically 30th percentile in all the shots you want to be taking, threes and shots at the rim, which is when you're, and they don't get to the foul line a ton either. And when you're playing four out with four essential shooting, Grayson Allen is a a great shooter too. You would hope that that three-point attempt rate would be higher. It's not. And that's because they're taking 15% of their shots on twos. But yeah, that's just fine when you're making 54% of them <laughs> in that in that lineup. And especially when you consider those are all half-court plays, right? 54% on half-court first shot offense and long twos are rarely going to lead to turnovers as well that if you know are they going to keep shooting that well as a team no you wouldn't think so but no booker kd has shot even in the high 50s before for mid-range uh, and kd is also shooting like close to 50 percent from downtown overall in the season and booker is a really good mid-range shooter beal hasn't actually shot as well for mid-range overall this season um now defensively they are bad at protecting the rim allowing 70 percent shooting at the rim not much else fluky there opponents are shooting slightly above average from three and they are at least preventing opponents from getting to the rim a reasonable amount if we go back to beal you want to look at how he's getting his shots again like he is shooting more spot ups that's 25 percent of his offense now and spot ups including both drives and spot up shots that was 12 percent of his offense in Washington and the usage has gone way down from the high 20s to the low 20s from his heyday in Washington when he was even over 30 some years and less isolation less pick and roll ball handler as well both of those are down about 10 percent or so in terms of the percentage of offense that he's getting remember the overall amount in terms of the usage has gone down too so he is playing more of a complimentary role he's just not taking as many threes and the ball hasn't gone in as much for him personally but as much as you might chafe at paying the amount of money they're paying for the stats that he's putting up right now if they're effective 
when he's on the floor with those other two guys, you can't complain too much. In the end, we'll just see how much that retains because those shooting numbers are absolutely bonkers, as they're going to be anytime you're a 131 offensive rating. It's a great point. And it's something that we're going to have to just build out the sample more. And because we're more than halfway through the season, but we're way less than halfway through, hopefully, the season that Beal is participating in. And so we'll have to to keep an eye on that. The the other thing I want to add to, and I think this puts into relief one of their problems, is the KD at center numbers. I wanted to check that out because they had that crazy comeback against the Kings with him at center. But that was with KD and four guards, including Eric Gordon. Overall, KD at center, 210 possession. So basically two games worth negative 14.8 net rating. And the problem is that any of those lineups that weren't the four guard lineup, they've got Keita Bates, Diop, Akogi, Nasir Little, Watanabe on the floor to put a four man next to KD. And yeah, I mean, that's just those guys just haven't performed so far this year. And we'll see what they can get. It, it sounds like they're not going to try to trade Grayson Allen now. He would have been good matching salary. But without that, they're probably not going to trade Nurkic either. I don't think they can upgrade at center. And Nurkic, to me, has been, given what we thought he would do, I think he's done pretty well, particularly from a health standpoint. And he also has been a nice hub for them as a passer offensively and a screener. So what are they going to be able to get with some of these minimum guys cobbled together? Nasir Little is maybe their only disposable salary and the couple of crappy seconds they have, one of which they were stripped of in the Drew Eubanks impermissible contact uh, at the start of the year. But yeah, you know, I are just 30 seconds here the way they've played since Beal came back like do you feel they're a threat in the West now they're more of a threat than I actually expected and I mean we've gotten some evidence that this offense is this offense is legit and the challenge will be just will will they be able to defend some of these teams and will you know the the best versions of them are going to be competitive but when you're running up against a more talented group like Denver or the Clippers that have capable defenders at every position is it a enough to make up for like let's say denver when then then they have Jokic, and it's like well great that's going to be really hard and so i think they're they might end up in the group for me of like can beat anyone won't beat everyone like they, that might be end up where i am but i know that you've consistently been higher on the theory of them than i have been. yeah and we'll see the the buyout market too maybe they can get someone of course they're not eligible to sign one who makes more made more than the mid-level who gets bought out but maybe they, if they could just get one more rotation guy at the four like it seems like Grayson allen's been good enough and the starting line has been good enough that they clearly are going to stick with this group but it seems like eventually that group could be exploited the thunder 35 and 15 8 and 4 since we last checked in on them they had a stirring come from behind victory which eventually went into double overtime over the raptors in the absence of jalen williams who's uh, still out with this ankle issue case and wallace started in his place and so the thunder now second in the nba in net rating at 8.8 fourth on offense fourth on defense they project for the two seed at 55 and 27 100 chance of making the playoffs they've performed well against their competition as the top four in the west now they did win a game in denver without Nikola Jokic, but they also won one with him they got completely blown out 
by the Nuggets early in the season at home, but they are six and four within the rest of the top four in the West, which includes, of course, the Wolves, Nuggets, and Clippers. They only have one game remaining within that group, the first game after the All-Star break at home against LA. What do you think of this idea that the Thunder should get a backup center on the strategy stream? We solicited some fake trades or a couple actually that involved the Thunder picking up a, a center. They need one? I thought they did more until I started doing some digging on this. And it was this the exact reason why I wanted to do the focus on this concept was because I was unsure. And there have been, you know, whoa, they could go after Andre Drummond. They could go after, you know, like when we got a fake trade with Clint Capella and all that. And I'm like, okay, well, how are, how are those minutes actually going? And the Oklahoma City Thunder, this will not count Sunday's game because that had not gone into Queen the Glass by the by the time I pulled these sets. They played about 1,600 non-garbage time possessions with Chet Holmgren not on the floor. They have a plus 12.4 net rating in those minutes. And they have been elite on both offense and defense. And on the offensive side of it, I want to give Mark Dagnold a lot of credit. This was a nuance that I had not picked up on, even watching a fair amount of them live, which I do. I love watching. The Thunder, one of my absolute favorites to watch this year. Shea Gildas-Alexander is on the floor for almost three quarters of the minutes that Chet Holmgren is not over the course of the full season. Mm. And unsurprisingly, you could give like the best offensive player being a reason the offense is still good. That makes a lot of sense. And they've been, you know. They've had a 123 offensive rating when Shea Gilbert Alexander and Chet Holmgren have been on the floor together. And that actually goes up to a 126.5 with the someone else at center other than than Chet Holmgren. And there are a couple big factors why that stuck out to me doing a little bit of digging on it. So the first one you see at the outset is that these non-Chet lineups force a metric ton of turnovers, 18.5% of opponent possessions and with and with a turnover. And that's 99th percentile. Really, really good. Not surprising that these groups, which often have either Jalen Williams or Kenrich Williams as the listed center, are terrible at defensive rebounding and pretty bad at opponent yeah, throws. And they don't have a, like anything close to a traditionally sized four with those no. groups either. You probably would say either Santa Clara, Jalen Williams, J Dub, or Aaron Wiggins, or maybe Josh Giddy would uh, Josh Giddy maybe defensively count it as your four there. So they don't really have like a traditional size four to go with your Kenrich Williams or Jalen Williams. But the most interesting part to me of the story here is that Oklahoma City's rim protection is stunningly good in these lineups. Uh, Opponents are only shooting 60% at the rim in those lineups. And there is some luck in the profile. Uh, um, Opponents are only shooting 35% on corner threes. That is well worse than average. But overall on threes, opponents aren't too far outside of the median. So you're mostly okay there. And they're giving up a ton of threes. So if you regress that, especially the corner threes to the mean, then things would look a little bit worse. But the room protection numbers were jaw dropping when you consider how small they are and middle of the road in terms of opponent room frequency. So it's not like they're giving up a ton and they're converting a fair amount of those to floaters. As we'll- let, let me add a little context there. Looking at some of these numbers, protecting the room for their guards. We talked about it with Wembenyama, right? And Holmgren, you know, defensive field percentage allowed at the rim, 53%. He contests a, a bajillion shots, but it, uh, he's off the floor. They still protect the rim very well. Opponents shooting very poorly. So look at some of these guys. Isaiah Joe has contested 59 shots at the rim, but he contested, he's allowing 51% shooting. <laughs> And now maybe some of these shots, maybe guys are multiple guys are contesting him. Kendrick Williams, not exactly a Skywalker, 57% shooting. Lou Dort, 
60% shooting. Jalen Williams, J-Dub, 61% shooting. Aaron Wiggins and Shea, 63% shooting. All of these are numbers that are below just what the average player shoots or the average team shoots at the rim. So all of these guards are actually like getting there and making a play. Like Shea Gilgis-Alexander is actually third on the team in terms of the number of shots that he's contested at the rim, 162. And he mostly plays in kind of an off-ball role. He's not going to be the, the guy that they want on ball. He's more of a roamer. And he makes plays, obviously, as a steals guy, but also defending the rim. Like that's a great number for your sensible point guard to have contested 162 shots at the rim that's like four a game basically really and and actually like have an effect Uh, yeah as well so again i don't know if this is coaching they are athletic they are rangy they play intensely but like their guards and smaller players are actually having an effect at the rim in these small lineups it's remarkable a couple other things that stand out in the non-chat lineups their transition defense is incredible they actually have a negative opponents points plus in transition i will note that a part of that is an unusually low 106 opponent offensive rating in transition on 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 the break including a 97 offensive rating off of a live rebound so i expect some regression to mean that is preposterous and overall 94 opponent half court offensive rating when chet holmgren is not on the floor that is 88th percentile and opponents are about 80th percentile in terms of the frequency that they're playing in the half court so these lineups are doing some of the traditional things well, even if they're doing it in a non-traditional way. And there is a core conceit to Sam Presti's vision of the Thunder, which is that all five players on the floor can shoot, dribble, and pass. And it is extremely important to acknowledge that changing one player out of that mold really does fundamentally shift things for them. And one of the key ways to explain this is that every every single guy who plays meaningful minutes at center for the Thunder, so I would say that's Chet Holmgren, Jalen Williams, Jay Will, and Kenrich Wood, has a higher three-point attempt rate per 36 minutes than each of their three primary playmakers. So Shea, 3.5 threes per 36, Jalen Williams, 3.6, Josh Giddy, four. All three of those centers I mentioned are over that. And so what that means is playing somebody, and, and they're all actually shooting well from three. Kenrich is at about 40%, Chet is at 39%, and Jay Will is at a respectable 35. So what that means is you can get away with drivers, these talented drivers who don't shoot that many threes and aren't always the most consistent at them, though Jalen Williams, Jay Will has taken massive strides forward, which we've talked about previously. So if you bring in, even if it's a bigger name, an Andre Drummond, a Clint Capella to fill some of those roles, it's going to fundamentally change the structure of this team's offense. And their defense has been great. Yeah, I I agree with that. And yeah, would it be nice to have like one big body you can throw in there as an off-speed pitch at Nikola Jokic or something when Chad inevitably gets in foul trouble in a Denver OKC series? Like, yeah, maybe, but that guy is probably going to end up taking more off the table in most games due to his lack of shooting. And, you know, clearly they don't want to go after someone who's overqualified for that role and give up a bunch of assets for someone who may not even help them most of the time anyway. One one other quick note. There is one framing of this that I I, is a little bit persuasive to me of it could be kind of like the Dario Saric at center minutes for the Suns that worked so well. And unfortunately, due to injury, we didn't get to really see those as much in the playoffs where it's like it works again. It works when you don't get the plan for it and all these other stuff. But when you get into 
the playoffs and can go after it. But we're just going to have to see. And on the idea of giving up assets to slow down not only Jokic, but theoretically Zion Williamson, Carl Anthony Towns, some of these guys, maybe. But the other nice thing about the Thunder is they're extremely young and they're extremely asset rich. So if that is a problem they need to solve, I think it's smart for them to be reactive rather than proactive because it may not be a need at all. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths. And where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. So these stats I'm about to give Danny are contain the one that surprised me the most of it of anything that we're going to go through here. The Pels are 28 and 21, three and five since we last checked in on them. Zion's kind of been in and out of the lineup a, a little bit. They've had a few injuries here and there. Mostly been healthy though over the last month. 3.3 net rating, 14th on offense, ninth on defense. They project for the fifth seed at 48 wins. But BPI thinks they have a 95% chance of making the playoffs. I, maybe they they just don't do a good enough job of factoring the play in or something. But like, where can I get a twenty to one payoff on the Pelicans not making the playoffs this year? Like <laughs> that, if I could get that ticket somewhere, like please well, let me know. It it also seems like they're discounting injuries, which is a yeah. No, a, it, a it, it seems that way, right? I mean, you just any of these teams, like they they don't have enough of a cushion where it's like you know a three game cushion over these teams that are around five hundred. And a great a great stat from. John Schumann, the Pelicans are one of only three teams, the other two being the Celtics and the Pacers, that have more wins against teams that finish January over 500 than under 500, which is just just a, that, that's a thing. And I, I wanted to what what I wanted to delve into, and this was partially inspired by the game I attended in person about a month ago against the Pels, which was a gigantic weird disaster of a game because the Pelicans went up early and it just became not yeah, usable. Not simple. a disaster for the Pels. No, 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 no. Just it just like for me to watch it and evaluate the Pelicans, it was useful because it was useless because they the game was over eight minutes in and so it was just like okay we're just watching these dudes play but something i had noticed a little bit in that and then when i went into more now is it seemed like brandon ingram wasn't taking any three-pointers and the answer is that is completely correct so ingram he we were so thrilled when he kind of transitioned into being around 39 percent threes taking 
about six and a half per 36 in both the 1920 and the 2020 slash 21 seasons. And since then, that 6.5 threes per 36 has dropped to 4.4, 3.8, and 4.1 this year. And then the percentage, field goal percentage on those has vacillated more, has vacillated more. So we're not seeing that part of Brandon Ingram's game nearly as much. And it's having real consequences for his individual efficiency. Yeah, that 6.5 threes per 36 a while ago down to the 4.1 this season and that's you know the positional average at small forward is about six per 36 and when you're not getting your positional average and shooting from three at one position both in terms of the spacing that you're providing and just the actual math of shooting a three which is an efficient shot then you gotta kind of find it elsewhere but then you also have a power forward who doesn't shoot any threes and generally a center who doesn't shoot any threes as well and while zion has gotten a lot of the flack for some of the pelicans team building struggles despite their outstanding talent up and down the lineup but you know i do think ingram deserves some of that as well even though he looks the part of an nba small forward and has uh, since he got drafted it does make things a little bit more difficult and then his individual efficiency not getting to the rim that much even though he's shooting a scalding 74 percent at the rim and that only comprises though 14 percent of his field goal attempts and 5.6 free throw attempts per 36 is kind of below average if you look at all the guys who have a usage over 26 and ingram's at 27 that's below average for that group so that's why he's not an incredibly efficient option he's right around league average and it's a shame because he's so good shooting the mid-ranger and that comprises a lot of his shots that if he could just find ways to be a little bit more efficient and part of that is because he's not playing with a particularly space floor around him to get to the basket but also because he's not like the quickest guy who's going to get on top of the basket or anything he wants to kind of get to a spot and shoot over guys so that but his that mid-range shooting is really good it's just you wish he could supplement it with a little bit more off-ball game a little bit more efficiency uh, and you know, he's improved as a passer as well but when you give him the ball there are only so many shots that he or so many types of shots that he's going to create to stress out the defense and open up that passing it's also part of why the cj mccollum ingram fit was so weird though i will note this cj mccollum is taking 3.2 pull-up threes per game and shooting 46 percent on them so far this year he's been absolutely molten on those so far this year and just as a stray note because i was pulling up free throw attempts per 36 of high usage guys Two of the bottom five players in free throw attempts per 36 with this high usage are now starting in the same backcourt, and that is Tyler Hero and Terry Rozier. That will be worth watching, though Miami generates free throws with other spots on the floor. But starting two players who just never get to the line is going to potentially be a problem for them. But the the other Pelicans thing that I wanted to mention briefly is they're actually making their threes legitimately well. They're seventh best in the league as of Friday in terms of three-point field goal percentage. The challenge is that they're 25th in attempt rate. And when you look at the individual kind of like shots up per 36, it makes sense because they have three guys who've shot him at a pretty good volume who have played regularly, and that's Trey Murphy, CJ, and Jordan Hawkins. But Hawkins is, Hawkins has played less than a thousand minutes this year, and then Trey Murphy missed a bunch of time. Now, when you build out the sample with more Trey Murphy, you can get there. But then it connects with that big thing you were talking about before, which is they have a starting power forward who never shoots threes. Their centers are both relatively low. You know, Valanciunas is making them, and Larry Nance is 
is actually wildly in a small sample size shooting 46% from three, but they don't take that many of them. And so if you're five, you're four and you're three aren't taking many and you have three other guys in your rotation who do, it's just not quite enough to build it out. And you know, like Herb Jones, the temp rate is low, Najee Marshall, those type of guys. So, th- so the Pels, there's a question of, could you just have those guys shoot more threes? But one of the problems is the Pelicans don't shoot pull-up threes because that's really sometimes where you can do it. Now, they're not, they're not always good shots. And this is one of my favorite weird stats. There are five individual players who attempt more pull-up threes than the entire Pelicans team. Luca, Trey, Tyrese Halliburton, Donovan Mitchell, and Steph Curry. And six pull-up threes per game. That's the second lowest in the league. The Raptors are the only team that's lower. And yeah, that's just it's just something I wanted to know. Well, the other thing I wanted to note is uh, CJ McCollum has been talked about. Maybe it gets a little bit of blame there. That, that trade for him, did that was really kind of an all-in move. Did that work out? Well, within what he's capable of doing, he's playing extremely well right now. He's on pace for a career high in true shooting by quite a bit, 60%, shooting 43% from three overall. And, and, and on roughly nine attempts per 36. So like pretty good volume there. Yeah. So for this, uh, his age 32 season, he's reduced his usage. He is taking more spot outs, playing off the ball more maybe than he ever did as a, a clear number three option. And so there was talk last year that he was dealing with his thumb issue. He was dealing with the shoulder issue. He had surgery on both in the offseason. That's always a difficult situation a 31 year old well okay is he gonna come back and play better next year because he had these issues or is the passage of time going to counteract the fact that he's ostensibly healthier in this case uh it has been the former that the surgery clearly has helped him he was clearly hampered last year and he's playing much better this season from an efficiency standpoint let's move on to the to the minnesota timberwolves who's chris finch clinched the all-star coaching honors this season and that is via a 35 and 15 full season record seven and four since the last 15 60 the wolves are fourth in cleaning the glass net net rating plus 7.3 per 100 possessions 18th in offense and still numero uno in defense espn's bpi puts them at 54 wins which would be third in the east and Uh, probably the west they wish they were sorry the west yeah yeah that would well, let's see where that would with with everything that's happened actually it would put them third in the east too behind the cleveland cavaliers wow dpi loves them some Cavs. yeah they do and and some celtics well yeah but the celtics are really good so yeah a little bit of trade gossip uh, on them here danny yeah, F- Jake Fisher saying that Carl Anthony Towns is not being traded. That's something we expected. And the Wolves, you lamented this in the mock deadline. I was the Wolves that he, that they're going to be active. And it, it is kind of on the low end of things. Maybe they're in into the Tyus Jones conversation, bringing the Minnesota product back. And, and it was interesting yeah. that Fisher noted that they could bring back Tim Connolly, former Tim Connolly players, Monte Morris and or Bones Highland. I didn't always think of Bones Highland as the most loved player by the Tim Connolly regime, but media does have familiarity with Well, well they traded him after Tim left. That's true. Yeah, maybe yeah. he's less loved by the Booth regime. If we're talking about Wolves trades, it doesn't seem like he's at all on the table. And it seems like also that they might want to hold on to Nas Reed with the idea that they need him at least as a backup big. If they were to move on from Carl Anthony Towns this offseason, you hope they don't have to do that. But Towns' salary really balloons. And But if they're going to be a top three seed, it would certainly be a bitter pill to swallow. 
to move on from their all-star this offseason. You know, perhaps if he really disappoints in the playoffs, they might feel differently. But there's a feeling like Reedy's on a reasonable deal, signed a, a two plus one, making about 13 million a year. And I think they should think about trading him because to me, Nas Reed is never going to start for them. And they just they have this massive hole going forward, not only a backup point guard this year, but also then at starting point guard next year and if they could move him and get reinforcements at guard i would seriously consider it because i i don't think he's he's been a really good offensive player but i'm also concerned about his defense and the fact that he can't start and there's an, an offense only big is is good but it's also like he hasn't really performed in the playoffs part of partially because he was injured last year but he was bad in the memphis series to the point where he was barely playing granted he's evolved since then but i, I want to talk just generally about his season and he's playing next to a big nearly exclusively this year in market contrast to what took place last year where he was basically the sole backup center carl anthony towns missed a bunch of time with that calf issue where he had the setback and then when towns came back that was right around the time reed goes down with the broken wrist so reed played i think 68 games last year and he played a bunch of minutes at center without another center next to him last year 1987 possessions actually not bad negative 2.2 net rating with reed at center usually he played with either Jaden mcdaniels or kyle anderson next to him to kind of support him as a defensive four next to him at the five this year he's played only 233 possessions at center with no towns or gobert on the floor and those minutes haven't gone particularly well in that small sample so you see a lot of differences in his game which is about what you would think because he's playing mostly four this year as opposed to five last year so let's start with Seth's rim protection stats this year 20 percent contest percentage 57 percent opponent shooting at the rim and that's actually interestingly about the same as opponents shoot overall when he's in the game at the rim and i think a lot of that is because he's playing with next to another center particularly gobert and that that 20 percent contest percentage that's like you know power forward level of contest percentage last year 33 percent contest percentage but he allowed 64 percent shooting he's not really a prominent rim protector last season he shot 81 percent at the rim and i thought where he was most effective was on, on drives against clothes that's down to 74 percent this year he took 34 percent of his shots at the rim last year i mean that's part of what made him so effective was taking so many shots at the rim and shooting 81 percent but now that's down to 24 percent so fewer shots at the rim and shooting a worse percentage again indicative of the lack of spacing that he's playing with the not being the center three-point attempt rate up this year yes. by quite a bit yeah i mean he's up to seven seven and a half threes per 36 minutes making 42 percent of them and if that doesn't regress to the mean it's a very positive sign for the wolves but he Nas Reed is a career 36 percent three-point shooter and was in the 35 34 range each of the last three years prior to this one so this would be a massive uptick for him there yeah and worth noting too i mean that is a big number even for a four to shoot yeah. 7.5 for 36 not to mention to hit 42 percent which again i probably a little over his head but when you watch him he doesn't look like a guy who has like the most versatile jumper but he can kind of he's not necessarily taking him on the move but he's kind of taking him on the lean where he just <laughs> doesn't really need to like he doesn't really jump on his shot so he just sort of whatever direction his feet are pointing when he gets it he can just sort of keep his momentum going slightly and just fire it up but just while his feet are still on the ground 
essentially he's just been very aggressive and he's been making i mean he and one of the things about shooting a set shot is you should you can usually get it off a, a little bit quicker kind of like carl anthony towns as well i wish carl anthony towns were as aggressive from three as nas reed is uh, unless he's going for a a 80 point game the way he was uh, a little bit ago uh so you know reed is certainly shooting extremely well his drive game is not as useful as rim game is not as useful when he's not playing as the center and being guarded by the opposing team center uh, and you know he's not really like a post-up guy's isolation game a drive game hasn't been as good this season but that offense is very very good but you still just don't think that he he's a liability at either big position but particularly at center so considering that he's movable salary would be considered positive salary by a lot of teams i would very seriously consider moving him like if i could trade him for tyus jones danny with an understanding of like that tyus jones would seriously consider re-signing at something close to the money he's at now like i would do that for sure uh, i'm not sure if that's the sort of return that washington's looking for maybe that becomes a three-way trade but i think the idea of like oh we would never move him like it's tough because he is a fan favorite he is a guy that they developed uh, basically out of nowhere but i I do think that he there's also a risk he's not going to play that well in the playoffs and you know you've got two centers that are going to play hopefully like 38 minutes a game in the playoffs already the the reason for me that you would keep nas reed is if you believed that you could start him at center either in case of a long-term towns injury or you trade carl anthony towns and i don't think reed if the goal is to be as competitive as the wolves have been even close to this year i don't think that's possible I don't think he's a good enough player on both ends of the floor. You brought up the limitations with the drive game and everything else. Like he can, the three point shot, maybe it's not quite this great, but it, it, it could be there. But the rest of it, you know, doesn't, doesn't really get to the line or anything else. And the, the wolves do have, like, if you kind of try to parse out the read, like what would be the closest equivalent to read as the starting four, it does have really good offensive numbers, but I don't think that's because of Nas Reed's presence. It's that, that group also includes, a great defender in Gobert. They have an 81 defensive rating. And then you have Conley and Edwards. So I, I think it's, you know, it is more that. So I'm largely in the same boat with you on that front, though I fully expect that the Wolves are not. And, and Reed may end up being a focal point in the question of just how much is ownership willing to pay. And we're going to get that answer over the next 18 months. Probably actually over so, the next 13. Yeah. And recall, of course, uh, layaway master Mark Lore is <laughs> supposed to make his final payment in the spring to take full control. Doesn't seem like the deepest pocket, you know, particularly because it wasn't like this was some big sale price. Uh, the Wolves, I think, was in the 1.5, 1.6 billion or something over a few years. And uh, Glenn Taylor probably wishes he waited a little, little bit longer to put the team up for sale because if they were doing <laughs> what they're doing right now, uh, the and just the way that it's inflated he probably i don't know if he would have doubled it but he probably would have got a billion more at least you would think so sadly danny we missed the celtics beating the grizzlies by 40 i was i would have liked to have watched this game because there are players that i literally have never heard of who played in this game for the memphis grizzlies they had 13 of their 15 full roster players injured for this game the two full roster players who played in this one for the grizz were luke Kennard and david roddy and then their two-way guys jacob gilliard 
and gg jackson and i think they i can't remember they i think they signed, signed scotty pippen jr to a two-way also and then injury exception matthew hurt what does the t stand for in t trey jemison is a center apparently out of uab he is 24 years old and then this guy who got dunked on by jonathan kaminga uh i've never heard this name said before he went to princeton tosan evwum evwumwan I think would be how you would say it. So the Grizz are a little injured right now. Statistically, 18 and 32. I have no idea how they have 18 wins on the season. Like Taylor Jenkins, they, they had such an ugly start to the season. But since then, I think they've really, really competed. Like I think this, like Taylor Jenkins has done a pretty darn good job. They are 25th in net rating, negative 6.4. Down to 30th on offense, below even the miserable Trailblazers. But 11th on defense. And Jaron Jackson Jr. won't be in the defense player of the year conversation this year. But uh, he is certainly having a very good year to get them to that number. And they project for 29 wins and i'm not sure yeah i I would imagine bpi knows about their injuries and that would be the 13th place in the west they will not be making the nba playoffs this season I'm impressed that the Grizzlies are four and eight after Bain and Smart went down. Um, though that is with a negative nine point five net rating. So they they got they and they remember those wins kind of came in quick succession. They had that surprising one on MLK Day over the Warriors, and then they also had wins over Toronto and Miami and and Orlando. Those were all in one week, and then they've lost every game since then. Because he got hurt, one of the things that I wanted to do a little digging on was Marcus Smart. I'll make this a little bit brisk. Um, last year, Marcus Smart on the Celtics, 54% true shooting on 18 usage, 7 assists per 36. This year, 55 true shooting, so basically the same. 23 usage, that's a pretty decent bump, but 5 assists per 36. So he actually went down in assists, up in usage, which means more as a play finisher rather than a play creator. Grizzlies have a 110 offensive rating when Smart was on the floor. That was slightly better than when he sat as of when he went down. And part of why the Grizzlies offense has been so bad are these ghastly numbers when Smart, Morant, and Bain are all off the floor, which unfortunately now are almost 1,800 possessions. They have a 105 offensive rating, which is third percentile right now in the league. And so if you look through Smart's kind of stats, well, what's different? He's taking more threes um, up to eight per 36, which is a lot. Like that's more than we just talked about with Nas Reed, though smart as a guard. And his percentage has gone down to 31. He's a career 32% shooter. So you don't want to say it's like wild that he's at only 31%. And I'm concerned, deeply concerned that Marcus Smart upping his role within the offense. I talked about that increased usage hasn't really moved his free throw attempt rate. 3.3 per 36 is is very weak. And it speaks to some of his limitations as a ball handler. And, and you could say even as, as an athlete now getting into deeper into his career. And the good news is that Smart's efficiency on twos and his frequency both improved. Um, 58% on twos, if it extends over the full season, would be a career high by almost 6.5%. Um, and that's that's fantastic. And th- that said, this season, it's a career low and restricted attempt frequency, just 11% of Marcus Smart shots. It's that the jump is that he's making basically every other two-pointer that he's taking. And generally, I, I'm skeptical of those kinds of improvements. If a guy does that for a year, I'm going to expect a regression to the mean. Smart, the uh, EPM is actually really positive on him defensively. Um Plus 3.5 would be the best of his career by almost a full point. Smart steal rate is actually career high as well. But one of the big differences is like in the on off is that teams are taking 
fewer of their shots at the rim when he's on the floor than when he sits. And I don't think most of that is a Marcus Smart situation. I think it's models maybe giving him a little bit of credit for it. And so, like, I would say that Smart, he's he's definitely been a disappointment in part because part of what they wanted to bring him in for was to steady the ship when John Morant was out. And that most certainly did not happen. But part of that to me was them believing that Marcus Smart was a different player than he fundamentally was. Yeah, and there was a lot of talk of when he was in Boston that things really changed for them when they put the ball in his hands as a point guard where he'd been playing next to Kemba Walker and Kyrie Irving and Isaiah Thomas. And I think that was true, but that's also because they had a lot of guys that didn't require him to really go against a set defense and pick a roll. He was, even if he was the nominal point guard, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown were at the top of the scouting report. And he was usually playing with the space floor with a, a shooting five or, or a really good lob threat. So I think he's a guy who could run pick and roll when the point of it was to get a switch and get the ball to Jason Tatum or maybe get it in the lane because he's being guarded by the opponent's worst perimeter defender. Or maybe he can duck in a little bit because they got someone who can pass on the ball from the elbow get physical inside on a post up or two and yeah memphis doesn't really play that way they don't have those sorts of wing threats and so he really memphis is much more kind of station to station he's just going to be an off-ball guy when he plays with their starters and then not really qualified as a primary pick and roll threat you know to the point where i think they felt like they had to play him with another ball handler pretty much all the time and we'll see though i i still believe in the vision of this group i think their defense actually would be getting a lot more plaudits this year if opponents weren't shooting just a batshit insane percentage from three against them throughout most of the year particularly with that terrible start that they had opponents were shooting like 40 percent from three and them for like the first month and it's still really high so I, i'm not ready to shovel dirt on this yet it doesn't seem like he's necessarily going to be available unless somebody comes with a huge offer for him the la lakers 26 and 25 seven and four since we last checked in on them although not without drama exactly exactly even in net rating 17th 0.0 19th on offense 14th on defense they project for the eighth seed at 42 and 40 and playoff odds 41 percent my prediction by the way the eighth seed will have more than 42 wins in the west it always happens that way that there are just so many weak sisters down the end that the teams that are actually trying compete up on unfortunately jared vanderbilt there's everyone was saying they should go back they should start vanderbilt go back to last season's starting lineup from the playoffs you know at least until they had to take vanderbilt out towards the end of series because he couldn't shoot at all uh and i thought he did actually change some of the games that they played in particularly that overtime victory over steph curry and the warriors like he actually started to shut curry down curry had some moments in the second half and overtime but it was just much more difficult with vanderbilt on him getting over screens and they were able to largely keep anthony davis a little bit closer to the paint when he was out there but it's a significant right foot injury fortunately vanderbilt has had a number of foot injuries in his career going back to what cost him his season at kentucky mostly and then his first season with denver as well they he's out several weeks in a minute no official diagnosis yet brian soder said he thought maybe there could have been a liz frank mechanism there which uh, that's of course what chet holmgren had and that would be the end of the season for him and that's that's a problem because they really are low cam reddish is out still with this ankle issue too they really don't have anyone to guard the ball right now and when you have a rim protector like anthony davis that you don't want to like blitz every pick and roll with that's a problem it forces them to sacrifice some things and we um one other quick trade note from them with Jake Fisher is that um, 
The Lakers are trying to include Gabe Vincent in some trades. We'll see if that actually happens. I think Vincent is undervalued right now relative to his general contribution because... Yeah. Well, well, we'll find out. And maybe he's just like has this arthritic knee and just is never going to come back. Very possible. Um, what the, I wanted to focus more on a thought experiment for the Lakers. And so they've played 2,300 possessions with Anthony Davis and LeBron in the four. That is actually significantly more than last year in, in total. And this is in, you know, roughly 50 games. Hmm. It, and and that is they've been they've been healthier at the same times, which is good. Plus one point six net rating with both of them on the floor, a little bit better than league average, closer to 60th percentile on both offense and defense. By comparison, the 22-23 Lakers had a plus 6.2 net rating when LeBron and AD were on the four, plus eight the bubble title year, and actually better, plus 14 the year after that. But that, that, I believe that was the year the problem was they were just never healthy at the same time, so the sample was super small. And there's been a lot of discussion, justifiably so, over the last month about whether the Golden State Warriors are good enough to add for the present. And they, you know, the the, the problems with Clay and everything else that we've talked about as much as everybody else has. I think that the Lakers have gotten a little bit of a pass there, and I think it's a far more interesting question than some are letting on. So you brought up that they're dead even in net rating. I brought up that they're only a slight positive when LeBron and Anthony Davis are on the floor. And so the question that I kind of wanted to delve into a little bit is like, should they really give up future assets, especially underlying underscore unprotected ones to improve for the short term? And there are two components to that. One is, well, how much better are you getting in the short term? What are you really benefiting from that? And the Lakers did make the conference. I don't know. Well, I think the answer to that is what kind of hourglass emoji LeBron (laughs) just tweeted. That that basically determines what what kind of moves you should make at the deadline, right? Of uh, of course it does. And yeah. But by the way, can I interject here for a second? LeBron's like declining to elaborate on what the hourglass emoji meant or the the empty hourglass you know times up uh, emoji declining to elaborate on that you know i just think that that's not like good leadership for your team i I guess you can put public pressure on the team that like they need to make a move i guess that is the the interpretation of that that is going to take hold of the day and they have uh, one two straight over two really good teams one of which took place without lebron and ad uh, who were kind of strange late scratches against boston but to just do that and then not elaborate on it i mean i i just don't think that that's like effective leadership for your team i think you got to go the route of just pretending like everyone is good enough on on your team publicly and that we have enough to do it here and then you just put your pressure on privately right? yeah. like like and say hey the, you know what knives, like if you don't improve knives, this team i get a player away from leave. the cameras not in front of the cameras um yeah. and you know just maintain plausible deniability with your teammates because you're not going to get the best out of your teammates by basically saying that you don't believe in them uh so they, they're also like not a particularly asset rich team and so the i agree i agree with you wholeheartedly yeah and sorry, I, I, sorry I, for that aside back to the idea of whether they should actually make a trade or not but they should give up future assets especially unprotected one for the short term and and so there are kind of two parts of that one is well how good are those assets actually in the long term and there is a natural inclination to say they're the lakers they'll figure it out you know they've gotten better players in free agency their their ev is and batting average are much higher than the average team not perfect but much higher than the average team however the lakers even if lebron just was gone after let's say after next year or after this year honestly they wouldn't have usable cap space until 25 that's right before anthony davis's age 32 season 
And the only way that they would really have money then is to not add salary between now and then, which would be negated by a trade for DeJounte Murray and numerous other things. And a way that they could be better, you know, in 26 and 27, 28, 29, these years where they could trade the picks is by getting improvement from their existing young guys, because remember, they're out a lot of picks for the near future. And I'm not the biggest believer that as I do like Max Christie, but like Max Christie, Maxwell Lewis, Jordan Huchifino, not as big on Huchifino, where like, can they step into starting roles? Can they step into valued reserve roles over the years, even if the Lakers do better with minimums than you think? So that's one part of it. And I think that I think that there's more downside risk with the Lakers. I think it gets a little bit yada, 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 how bad they were for a series of years before LeBron James got there. And then they, of course, had have had a wonderful run with LeBron and AD and everything else. But I think betting against the Lakers is a smarter bet than some do because they've been generally poorly run. I would say ownership poorly run and general manager poorly run for a while now. And and so you could do that. But then the other part of the coin, I think, is in some ways just as compelling, which is, OK, you add a DeJounte Murray, you add a commensurate talent, whoever you see that who who fits their needs reasonably well. The Lakers, you know, say they turn it on kind of like how they did last year. Well, they're probably going to end up somewhere if they stay healthy, somewhere around 45 wins. And if the Lakers end up around 45 wins, then give or take, because yeah. so, usually so they, 45 wins would be 20 and 12 or so the rest of the way. So they've been a little bit better since I think I think it'd be 19 and 13. But yeah, yeah. It'd, it'd be it'd be strong. And 45 wins. We don't know exactly where that's going to place in the West, but I think that's something like the six, seven or eight seed. And they made it out of that general area last year and made it to the conference finals. But this is a different West than that was. And they they did well with who was in front of them. But that Memphis team was clearly in disarray injury wise and kind of otherwise. And the Warriors weren't as good as as at least I thought they were. I picked the Warriors to win that series and was was wrong. So I know that you that there's a reasonable belief and Anthony Davis is one hell of a defensive player. He's had some really good offensive moments, too. And then LeBron is even if he's not prime LeBron, he's still a very good player. He's still an all NBA consideration for me. My inclination, as much as the hourglass emojis are going to flow, is that if it requires unprotected assets to move forward and I understand all of the pressures in play, it would take serious gall. But I would like to think of myself that if I were in that situation, if my job were to be the steward of the franchise, that I wouldn't do it. I think I would do it for DeJounte Murray because he's he, also because he's young enough and it's going to be under contract for a his, while. His contract is a lot better. A like better. it's better to do it yeah. for him than for DeRozan for me. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that they're necessarily going that direction, but that, that'll be fascinating to see whether the Lakers end up having the best offer for DeJounte Murray and whether that Hawks internal leverage or just winning until the offseason works better. And I think probably the biggest holdup right now is the Lakers lack of matching salary that expires after this year that D'Angelo Russell player option that they gave out I mean I wonder how much more they would have had to pay him to get that to be a team option next year instead eh, probably a lot I, I would guess and then they wouldn't be able to get Gabe Vincent and of course part of their problem right now at point guard is that Gabe Vincent just he was supposed to really help them and and just has not let's move to uh, as you said on the last episode which I really enjoyed from Los Angeles to LA and the LA Clippers. Clippers after their win over Miami on Sunday, they're 35 they're sorry, 33 and 15, 8 and 1 since the last 1560, third in net rating, top 10 in both offense and defense, numero uno in offense, number 8 in defense. 
BPI projects them to have the best record in the Western Conference, 58 and 24. It is a big believer in the Clippers. That that would be three games ahead of the Thunder. It would be. And Avica Zubac did return earlier than expected from his calf strain. He went down on January 12th. He returned on February 4th, played 18 minutes in their victory, was was even in those 18 minutes. But good to have him out there. That meant that Mason Plumlee came off the bench and Daniel Tice in this game didn't play at all. I could see Ty Lue mixing and matching a little bit there, but but good to see Zubat's back. James Harden played 42 minutes in that victory over the Heat. 21 points, 11 assists, uh, did it on only 15 shooting possessions, uh, and uh, was plus 10 for the game. And Harden's true shooting percentage, 63%. He's also taking 58% of his shots from downtown, which is a career high in terms of the percentage of shots he's taking from downtown. Only 6.9 per 36 though yeah. which that, is that, that's a great indication of how much smaller his role is that yeah that seven per 36 is more than half of his shots yeah it is and that is way below where he was where he's in double digits per 36 in houston but he's shooting 40 and a half percent from three that would be a career high and that three point attempts per 36 about seven is about where he's been since leaving houston both in brooklyn and in philly and now in la so the big difference from where it's been before is the decline in his number of two-point attempts taking five two-point attempts per 36 making right about 50 percent of those and his assists uh, per 36 down about 1.5 a game from philadelphia and the usage is just over 20 percent. that's actually been rising of late with paul george playing less uh, and struggling with this groin issue so he's moving into a little bit more of a secondary creator role now than he has in the past if you look at how he's generated offense this year as opposed to last year anything jump out to you Danny couple things um as a proportion of his possessions meaningfully less isolation about six percent less iso about five percent more spot ups so that is a typically a mark and a shift in role and another thing for Harden is he's taking more of his shots in transition that is another mark of a decrease in role because you don't generally get that many more transition opportunities it's just they make up a larger part of the sample if you're taking fewer shots elsewhere yeah that's a that's exactly right and pick and roll ball handler Harden kind of moved from being the pick and roll maestro early in his Houston tenure into being more of an isolation guy that has dissipated some he hasn't gone to that step back and that step back hasn't been as effective this year instead he's shooting the three a lot out of high pick and roll he's got a 65 percent true shooting when he shoots out of pick and roll and he's taking a lot of these dribble jumpers out of pick and roll he's making 51 percent on jumpers off the dribble and a fair number of those are three i'd say most most of them are 69 percent e field goal percentage and as i watched those plays he's really improved at just taking that normal non-ice three off the dribble the scouting report on him seems to be to go under because you don't want to let him get into the lane because he's such a good passer setting up a role man like zubats and he just has become less of a character caricature of himself which he became towards the end of his houston days and then even when he first arrived in philly i think he deserves a lot of credit for breaking out of that mold despite his comments when he arrived in la of like oh i am the system etc etc but he actually has opened up more options for himself because he's just willing to take different types of shots he can shoot threes off the dribble going left which he really never did he can shoot threes off the dribble going right he doesn't have to kind of just rhythmically take the step back to get his three off anymore and he's such a good shooter that 
there's no reason for him out of a regular pick and roll if he could just get comfortable with it again that he has to step back like that does make the shot harder <laughs> objectively mm-hmm. and uh so he can shoot the jay going left now from mid-range as well from the left elbow out of pick and roll he can obviously get to a spot use his body to create a little space that started in philly where he was shooting more mid-rangers out of pick and roll uh, or isolation so the scouting report does still seem to mostly go under uh you might say we want to try to get him shooting inside the arc but then that opens up his passing game a little bit more to the big and then where he also has been much more effective is on layups he's shooting a career high 75 percent at the rim doesn't get there that often and of course he still gets fouled a reasonable amount although nowhere near as much as he did in his heyday uh so going to the basket out of pick and roll that includes floaters as well 58 percent true shooting last year that was 50 percent of mm. going to the basket out of pick and roll that's interesting because you know you'd think joel would have had the defense sticking close to him and it would have been harder for harden to finish uh, instead he's found the going a little bit easier uh, to finish at the rim out of pick and roll and he's shooting poorly from floater range you know that was a shot he really worked on at the towards the end of his houston tenure beginning of his time with the nets i thought it turned into a real weapon in the 21 season for him when he was in the mvp conversation before he got the first uh, of those hamstring injuries so if that is able to come back i I don't think he's going to continue shooting this crazy well on threes off the dribble out of pick and roll but that was a a shot that he really hadn't been taking probably the last five years or so to just oh the defense went under i'm just gonna fire it right away instead of having to take a bunch of weird dribbles to just he's doing a much better job to me of taking what the defense gives him he when you look at the way he drives in isolation he goes about 50 percent of the time left 50 percent of the time right and so he's just been very in control accessing different parts of his game and attacking more judiciously and unlike someone like bradley beal that lower role has enabled him to be more efficient yeah it's uh, the clippers are one of the kind of one of the bigger stories that we're not talking about as much i mean the projection that they just had the best 30 game stretch in team history 25 and 5 incredible let's turn to houston now they did not just finish the best 30 game stretch in team history but probably the best 30 game stretch they've had in the last uh, four years or so 23 and 26 four and seven since uh, we last checked in on them they did lose uh, in rather desultory fashion only putting up 90 points against the wolves uh, failed to eclipse 23 points in each of the first three quarters it, it was not close yeah they shot 35 percent from the field in that game not great yeah and houston still not a great three-point shooting team and if you can't shoot threes against the wolves you're gonna have a long night they're 21st on offense but still fifth on defense and they project for the 12 seed 39 wins but worth noting that the lake were projected for eight at 42 so certainly uh, the rockets maybe some reinforcements of the trade deadline that maybe they just play a little bit better there's uh, quite or, a possibility or, or they even they're just it. healthier than the other teams that they're competing with sure yeah now they do have a difficult february schedule however uh, they're the only team that's not in the bottom five of the league that doesn't have a game against that bottom five this month uh, so that hurts uh, a little bit though they did but, absolutely uh, crush the raptors who are not in that bottom five that i watched a lot of that game on thursday and part of the reason why i watched the game was because i wanted to spend some time with cam whitmore i believe that 
both you and I got requested in our last Spotify chats to talk about Cam Whitmore. And so I wanted to do the work and Whitmore just did to you get say his... Spotify chat? Sorry. The, the Discord. 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 That's okay. We, we've been recording for two hours here. We're, yes. we're, uh, but, but yeah, you guys should definitely check out my Discord chat, uh, yes. on Tuesday at 11 Pacific time and, uh, get, get in your email if you're a new subscriber. If you're not a new subscriber, uh, we've gotten a ton of people giving our free trial a shot. So I definitely recommend that you do that. Plug over, please continue, Dave. I was good that that you you handled that much better than than I would have because my brain is mush. But that, that's Whitmore, okay. That's my job. I I'm the plug yeah. guy here. Whitmore just to get his physicals out there because we haven't talked about him in a while. Six seven listed at two thirty two might be a little bit bigger than that right now. Six eight and a half wingspan. This is age nineteen season. And Whitmore started getting a consistent role with the Rockets on New Year's Day and has played in every game since then. And overall during that stretch, about twenty minutes a game. 14 points, four and a half rebounds, little bit below a steal a game, half an assist per game, but an impressive 60% true shooting both in January and on the season. On the season, 27 usage with only one assist per 36. And the reason why Whitmore has been so efficient, he's taking nine threes per 36 and making 47 per, sorry, making 40% of them. And so you said a lot of times the guy's shooting, shooting threes at a good rate. And I'm like, well, what is he doing on twos? 57% and not making free throws, which that kind of ties in with some, with, with something I want to talk about. And he has 21 dunks on the year. Uh, and I'm a little bit surprised that Whitmore is over 50% on both floaters and shots from 10 to 16 feet. I believe, especially having watched some film, there's going to be some regression of the mean there. But it's impressive because only 50%, roughly, of Cam Whitmore's twos are assisted. And so for him to be over, you know, be at 57% with having a lot of himself created, no, so a lot of that's transition, but still pretty impressive for him. And so the stats, the stats yeah. are good. But I wanted the, to- those dunks are are crushing. <laughs> by the way, I mean he loves to. He doesn't have the biggest hands, which is a, one reason I was a little lower on him in the draft process. And but he likes to dunk with two hands a lot, and he can come in off of one foot and do that. And he also can rise up off it too. He had a dunk in that big game he had. I think he had twenty four against the Raptors in the blowout, where he snuck along the baseline, got a pass, and just like caught the ball under the rim, jumped up, did a one eighty, and dunked it with two hands facing the rim. Uh, and that was against a pretty good rim protection. Like he, he, uh, I think Pirtle was in the area on that one. Like he, he definitely is extremely aggressive on the rim and he goes up hard with two hands most of the time. He's an impressive athlete. And, and there was one of my favorite plays in all the Whitmore film I watched was he got a deflection, just flew down the court and then skied for the alley-oop. I wish I remembered who threw it to him, but it was just like, oh yeah, like this, he is a player who can make a difference. And when you have a men Thompson out there and a lot of those lineups, you have some guys that can soar, which is pretty, pretty fun to watch. And the first thing when I started, you know, I, I, I just randomized offensive possessions. I'm like, oh, man, his jump shot looks a lot cleaner than I remembered on his college film. And I brought up the numbers that Whitmore shooting 40 percent on nine per 36. He was at 34 on six threes per 40 minutes in college as one year at Villanova. And so I think the jump shot looks good mechanically. I there there could absolutely be a toned down. He's from been this. rather aggressive with it too. Oh yes. So so there he he's doing that and that's looking good. Um and he he is exceedingly confident 
as in his ability as a finisher. There were times where I was thinking about um, Rex Grossman, the football player, as like in like I can do this and just oh, like dude, tr- that, and, that's back when I used to care about the Bears. Don't yeah. don't bring that up to me. For, and for and God's so there sake. were there were times where that worked beautifully. Like there was a there was a play where he like finished through Drew Holiday contact in transition. It's like oh shit, like th- this isn't the type of thing that happens very often. And then there were other ones where it's just like oh he just tried to jump through Udoka Azebuke or Vucevic, who are just huge human beings. And he'd like the center's totally in position, low hope chances. And so I, I don't know whether Whitmore would you want to kind of dissuade him from that kind of thing or whether he'll, you know, he'll get better at it to a little bit extent. And yeah. maybe you can I, I mean, finishing is one of the things that young players uh, get better at. Yeah. The most. And, and, and with craft, it could, it could be there. And then the one play I actually burst out laughing sitting in a room by myself. Um, Cam Whitmore got it was a loose ball that went to him at the top of the key. Kevin Love is standing in charge position when Whitmore is at the three point line. Kevin Love is standing in the same position when cam whitmore tries to tries to finish and draws the charge like it was it was just like come on have some recognition and that ties in with watching whitmore on defense and i had some people who had keyed me, who had told me like you might see something here and the answer is yes i i so i wrote all this stuff there are a series of things that are yelled me yelling in all caps in my write-up which is when i'm pissed off that's usually the only time i do that or like a ridiculous athlete and my short description is the randomized Cam Whitmore defensive film was some of the most aggravating defensive film I've ever watched. And there was a play that just blew my mind. They were playing against the Jazz, and he's guarding Ochai Abashi in the corner, talented three-point shooter. And Jordan Clarkson drives on the same side of the floor. Whitmore takes one step towards Clarkson. And so, you know, like that's reasonable. You know, you're trying to try to dig, trying to hedge. He then stands there completely motionless as Jordan Clarkson drives past Whitmore and then passes to Abaji. He neither took a swipe at Clarkson or recovered to his own man. It was like his controller got disconnected. And I'm just like, what the hell just happened here? It was one of the weirdest plays I've ever seen from a player. And there were a couple others that were very similar to that. And his screen navigation isn't great. But even with all those things that were just driving me up the wall, Whitmore has the physical tools to be a capable defender. He, um, the mental mistakes are correctable and coachable, even if his feel and recognition was the thing I hated. I went back and read my write up. That was the thing I hated the most about Whitmore as a prospect. And I, I honestly still hate it now, but the building blocks are so good that I'm still really excited about it. Yeah. And I, I never loved his ability to move his feet and not having the greatest wingspan. Um, but uh, I think the overall numbers uh, for him are not crazy. Uh, the steal rate is one of the things that the analytics uh, really loved about him at Villanova. And that's been solid, but not unbelievable. Uh, what did uh, you uh, see if you looked at some of that stuff? Oh, a lot of right place. His st- I thought his blocks were good. Like you see the athleticism and when he tries, the, those can look really good. There were a few steals that were nice. There was one where he was fighting with Sabonis for position and then Whitmore stole the injury pass. Fantastic. Really like that. But, but like there were a lot of this, the plays where right place, right time. And I don't mean that in the positive way where it's like, oh, you know, great instincts and he was there and something good happened. No, it was like there was a play where Jalen Brown got kind of caught and tried to throw an alley-oop to himself, but threw it at the wrong angle. And the ball just bounced to Whitmore, who just stood there and grabbed it from his shoes. Like he didn't do anything on that play. He didn't force them. He didn't force the Brown miscue. He was in the right place. And when you played you know, you're still working up your minute total, things like that can happen. So I didn't see like preternatural instincts or or something else in play there, but he is a, a great athlete, did have some nice pokes. And 
I like, as I said, I like his blocks much more than steel. So I, you don't see, so it was funny because I thought his college film was kind of hard to, hard to parse. And I think it's somewhat the same for the pros because the players who do the thing, like his combination of positive attributes is almost always an overwhelmingly good player. Like that's, you know, great athlete, applied athleticism is pretty good, shooting three at a high rate and do that. But you could tone down a little bit of three-point optimism that his free throws still aren't going in and they didn't in college either. And that his defensive recognition is terrible. His effort level is inconsistent and his physical tools are good. So it's not like he's Anthony Simons out there, but relative to like his ceiling. And I still think his ceiling is touchable. So if I had to guess, is Whitmore going to be a starter on a good team? I, I want another year or two or maybe even more than that. And just the efficiency and the usage for Oof. a guy. I mean, that 27 usage and 60% true shooting is, is really good. A lot of that is dependent on that jumper. He's very reminiscent. I would say it's funny you mentioned Jalen Brown earlier uh, of Jalen Brown uh, in his rookie year where Brown was not really someone who had a reputation as that good of a shooter, had a disappointing freshman year, came in and actually shot it pretty well as more of a role player. Brown didn't have 27 usage. Brown was on a, a much better team that made the East Finals the first year that he was there. So he had to be in more of a supporting role. I would expect that Whitmore's three point shooting is not going to sustain, at least in the near term. And it is just remarkable, though, with his running, cutting, he'll get some offensive rebounds. Like, just it's not like he's just spreading the floor and isolating and get to that 27 no. usage. Like, he's just finding ways generally within the, like, I wouldn't say that he's like hijacking the offense to get to that number. Not at all. Necessarily, would you? No, so. no. I, I mean, he, he takes some, like, he, he does some overly aggressive drives, but like his threes are very much within the flow. Yeah, so Miles Bridges was a cop uh, for him. I brought up Jonathan Kaminga in my chat, although I don't think that Whitmore is uh, quite the level of individual defender. We'll have to talk about Kaminga a little bit uh, in our next section, but... So those are sort of the guys that come to mind, maybe not guys who have exhibited the greatest field, but certainly excellent athletes who do have some ball skills despite not having great field. So you know, if you want to say Jalen Brown is a ceiling and you know, I'm not sure who you would think of a, as a floor for that type of player because he does have that true small forward size. But it's certainly, I mean, just to even have any stretch where he's had this kind of usage and efficiency yeah. as the 20th pick, it's already looking pretty good. And he was a, a pretty young pick uh, and certainly has shown that he should not have fallen to 20th, which I, I didn't think he should. I didn't think he should be in consideration for a, a top four pick the way he was being talked about, but certainly the Rockets, you know, I mean, he's, he's clearly been the more impressive of the Rockets uh, two rookies, although men has had some flashes lately too. A men has, and um, we'll, we'll talk of course more about him a little bit later down the road, but let's get to the Warriors. 21 and 25 lost it in overtime. Wait, actually, Nate, wait, do, you want to, do you want to split this up because you have two teams left and I have one? Do you want to do one of yours before I do the Warriors? Sure, why not? Yeah, we, we, we can go to the Nuggets on instead. Yeah, let's go to the Nuggets. Denver, 35 and 16, 7 and 3 since the last 1560. Plus 4.4 net rating is eighth in the NBA. We've talked about some of their Jokic, non-Jokic splits. Ninth in offense, 12th in defense. Um, BPI projects them to go 54 and 28, which would be the number three seed in the Western Conference. They are, that's, that is basically, it's a 0.2 of a win behind the Wolves. Um, so they're right in that, firmly in that mix. Um, and they're going to make the playoffs, of course. Aaron Gordon not having quite the same statistical impact as he did. Uh, he was over 60% true shooting the last couple of years. Uh, he was over 20% usage. Now he's below 60% true shooting. And uh, he's down around 17% usage. Steals and blocks are about the same. He's actually playing two more minutes per game this year, I think, just because they realize that 
playing him at backup center is a way that they can be respectable with Jokic uh, off the floor. But so 32 minutes a game instead of 30. It's interesting that he's generally been kind of limited to that minutes load. Uh, And of course, he's been dealing with this heel issue throughout a large part of the season. But offensive EPM last year, plus 2.5. It's negative 0.1 this year. And if you look at estimated Raptor, RIP regular Raptor, but Neil Payne, Posts that estimated Raptor based on the Brock score he used to work for 538. Uh, 3.1 estimated offensive Raptor last year, 0.9 this year. So I want to dig into a little bit more of how his game has changed here. From three-point range, he's taking fewer threes. That's a big part of the usage decline. He's shooting a career-high 40% from the corners. And in last year's playoffs, he was 44% from the corners, which is remarkable because he shot 26% on corner threes during last year's regular season. And he shot a lot more above the break threes last year than I think people remember. Last year in the playoffs, that 44% from the corners, that was half of his three-point attempts took place. Mm -hmm. And you saw teams like the Lakers trying to guard him with the center and it seemed like he hit a couple of back-breaking corner threes every game uh, just enough to kill that strategy more of his shots take place from two now 82 percent compared to 77 percent and the percentage of his shots at the rim is now 54 percent from 48 percent so more shots at the rim but he's just taking fewer shots overall and particularly from three offensive rebounding about the same nine percent that's an underrated part of his game again he has shown that you can't put really a smaller guy on him and of course putting the center on him has been one of the strategies that it's gained well so can can i interject one of the things looking through gordon shot profile that stands out to me he takes about one-fifth of his shots from three to ten feet so what we consider floater range last year 39 percent on those which was well above his career average this year 32 percent on those which is well below his career average yeah and that's not something that he's taking a lot of like he he maybe we see a little bit more of that from him if he's playing without Jokic but he's never been one of these touch guys from the mid-range digging into the play type data a little bit more transition encompassing about the same percentage as it did last year same with cuts the one thing that's down a little bit is he is posting up less that may be a feature of him being guarded by bigger players more often potentially or also just playing more backup center as well which he really did very little of during last year's regular season though the points possession is literally exactly the same uh 0.986 points per possession on post-ups. Last year's playoffs, he didn't post up that much, but he absolutely killed people. 1.5 points per possession posting up. Again, like what you saw at the beginning of that Lakers series, for example, when or or, uh, going against... Miami early on in that series where if he got a little guard on him or they tried to hide the little guard on him he would just post up quickly in transition and of course Jokic was going to find him every time that was another thing that just as you like to talk about the metronome where you were just putting your finger in the dike and then that was another thing that would open up in his corner three was a, another one of those the other thing that was interesting about last year's playoffs his usage went down from 21 percent in the regular season to 15 percent in last year's playoffs I think a lot of that was soaked up by Jamal Murray just being a lot more aggressive in the playoffs last year but they didn't look to him to create offense and and gordon is somebody who if you if you take out the one third of his shots that the hardest he's going to be a much more efficient player because you're you're putting you're leaving just the stuff where he has a real advantage 
Yeah, so ultimately, I haven't seen that much in watching him to think that he's like a much worse player. The three-pointer, I think he's going to need to prove again in the playoffs that he can make it, but he has made him from the corners, and that's really, there's no reason to honestly have him standing above the break that often. He's more of a baseline player at this point in time. Maybe he'll set some screens for Murray when Jokic is off the floor, but other than that, it's working along the baseline, offensive rebounding, posting up, getting a back screen, going to the basket out of that zoom action that they like to run. I guess that's not technically zoom action because he's getting the screen first, but similar concept and standing in the corner shooting threes and he's made 40% of those corner threes this season. So I think just the reduced numbers are just not shooting as well above the break and therefore taking fewer threes and then also just being guarded by larger players more often. Last thing I wanted to check on here, Gordon on Jokic off. So basically when he plays backup center, negative 3.3 net rating, which of course is quite respectable. That's not bad at all. Yeah, considering like that is very survivable. I think Michael Malone, as the season goes on, will go to that more and more. And what does it look like there? Those numbers seem pretty sustainable. They don't rebound and they foul a lot because they're small, but they actually protect the rim pretty well. It usually plays with Peyton Watson, those lineups, and he and Watson are, are pretty decent rim protectors for fours. And they force an average number of turnovers, which is pretty good for the Nuggets, which have never been a particularly high turnover forcing team. So I think that's, we'll see how many minutes Michael Malone can get out of him at backup center. I would, even noting the synergy between him and Jokic, there's synergy between Jokic and everybody else too. So I think using Gordon to stanch the bleeding at backup center as he did in the playoffs, I think there's a feeling that they don't want him playing more than in the low 30s minutes per game, which I I understand they're winning plenty of games anyway, but that uh, I would maybe shift his minutes a little bit more towards that in the short term here. Let's head to the Warriors. 21 and 25, three and four since we last checked in. I was starting to say that they lost wasting a 60 point game by Steph last night although worth noting that I think eight of those points came when they're already down double digits in OT this is why by the way the OT shouldn't be five minutes because you shouldn't have basically garbage time in an overtime that's supposed to be exciting there's no reason to reduce the excitement level just make the overtime two minutes or three instead any number that's less than five I would be happy with (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh but they're and they're actually low-key quite injured uh, at this point in time uh just to finish up on their stats 0.3 net rating 15th in the league 12th on offense 21st 21st on defense and they still project to win 42 uh eighth seed it would be tied with the la lakers playoff odds 41 percent per bpi and just getting back to their injury situation andrew wiggins sprains his foot relatively early on in that one he has to go out and they used to have a ton of guards out moses moody is going to return against brooklyn on monday but chris paul gary payton moses moody andrew wiggins all out in this one so they had to play Guy santos because dario Saric was out they played lester and quinones who actually quinones is someone that i like i think he's got the ability to kind of be like a a gary trent style offensive player at, at some point uh, he's on a two-way for them. Better NBA player than his college roommate, James Wiseman. Remember when people were saying, oh, they probably just brought him in because he's a roommate of James Wiseman. He actually might be better than James Wiseman in the end. Uh, I think not having Gary Payton really has affected them a lot. First, it was a calf, then it was a hamstring for him. He doesn't seem to be close 
And another thing that hasn't been talked about for them too is Dante DiVincenzo has been awesome for the Knicks. He's shot it really well from three, a pretty good point of attack defense. Maybe DiVincenzo didn't fit in quite as well to the Warriors system. He's kind of better in that Milwaukee box, New York Knicks style, like have a big center behind you sort of system. But like he's been really, really good. He was a good player. The Warriors didn't have a way to retain him. But if you look at why the Warriors have been worse this year, obviously Draymond being out is part of that. But another part of it is not having uh, DiVincenzo. And not, ha- really not, having, for them. not having Peyton. But the biggest storyline going for the Golden State Warriors right now is that on January 7th, the Warriors got worked by the Toronto Raptors. Steve Kerr did not play Jonathan Kaminga down the stretch. He was benched the final 18 minutes. Joe Lacob, owner of the Warriors, went to Kerr's postgame presser in part. No, no, that was that. I'm sorry. Let me correct you. That was the Nuggets game. That was the where Nuggets they game? blew the big lead. Yeah, the, the Raptors game, they were just never in it. But the Nuggets game was the one because I was there. He went to the presser and uh and Kerr kind of took responsibility for not playing coming in the last 18 minutes because he'd played really well in that game and then they couldn't score in the fourth quarter ended up losing correct Uh, I mean yeah the Raptors game was just a desultory loss all all the way around so yeah yeah, it was the blown lead in the in the fourth that game um but so starting with the game that the Warriors played the Bulls which was after that blowout to the Pels that I, I invoked earlier the Kind of the apple of ostensibly Lakeup's eye in that in that motivation was was Jonathan Kaminga. He had the best stretch of his career, bar none. Kaminga went twenty points or more in eight straight games and in the nine total since because he he had sixteen in that o double in that OT loss to the Atlanta Hawks. He's averaging twenty four and a half points, six and a half rebounds, and two assists playing oh, wow, those are like per, per minute cam whitmore numbers <laughs> and 70 percent true shooting in that stretch uh and so for the season coming up 61 true shooting on about 24 usage making his threes at a reasonable rate 33 but it's really the the twos going in at 60 percent taking a ton of them and he's been a transition force that has happened at time but a part of why he's been better this year is that like the spot ups have been solid you know he's taken 197 spot up possessions so far this year and points per possession is totally fine there and something that surprised me was that Kaminga is more efficient more effective on spot up jumpers than spot up drives I thought knowing his game there would be there but often part of that is um Seth talks about this sometimes his spot up jumpers are really open like they're they're astonishingly sure. open and and that and that's a part of the overall calculus and part of why Kaminga has been so good in the stretch is that he shot 42% on his catch and shoot threes in January. So he wasn't necessarily he's more like a 35% on that over the course of the season. Um, and so Kaminga, he's looked more aggressive. They've also been able to better incorporate some of what he brings on the defensive end. And they need that considering how weak their point of attack defenses this year with Clay Thompson not being able to do that anymore. And so it's been a huge stretch for Kaminga. It is not surprising. Fisher had the reporting that that he is basically off limits in any Warriors deal right now. And the stats, you were interested in this. The stats when Draymond, Andrew Wiggins, and Jonathan Kaminga have been on the floor together. Only 312 possessions, plus 20 net rating. Steph Curry is basically on the floor for all of those, so you could add him kind of as a as a fourth fourth member of those lineups. Their 125 offensive rating, 105 defensive rating is ridiculous. Yeah, and that... I talked about some of the absences that they have. Moody's not a great defensive player, but he's pretty decent as a, a team defender. Chris Paul definitely is still a solid defensive guard. And then Gary Payton the second is one of the best. And so that's basically, that's the only five-man unit I think they can put out there that can defend <laughs> and mm-hmm. and also have enough offense to, to get by. Um, 
So I like if they can supplement that by getting Gary Payton and Chris Paul back and coming up with a way to defend on some of their backup units, then I think they, you know, they could go on at least. I'm not thinking they're going to become a contender again. They could at least go uh, on a run. Uh, now, I mean, yeah, they're getting some shooting luck uh, with that group as well. I mean, that's not going to continue to be plus 20.3 net rating going forward. But this idea that Wiggins and Kaminga couldn't play together, a lot of that was Wiggins, Kaminga, and Clay couldn't play together because none of those three are really going to initiate much offense or pass. But now that you have Draymond out there to play center and also, you know, be your secondary ball handler on the offensive end, now all of that does fit together. One thing I'll say when I've watched Kaminga during this period is just the easy bounce that he has. Yeah. Off off a of two feet. You know, it's not quite Shaden Sharp level, who might have the easiest bounce anyone I've ever seen, but he's at the next level of that. He can do it off of one foot, but really even more so off of two feet. And he just takes off before guys are expecting on these drives where someone might be trying to get in position for a charge. And if he had to take another step before he took off, you might get there for the charge, but he's just in the air before the defense can even rotate over, much less actually jump and get in his path. And, you know, I mean, he's taking off, you know, dotted line level off at two feet without even like some massive running start. Like he just is off the floor so fast on these plays at the basket and that's how he's getting to this 70 percent true shooting is just as incredible finishing and defensively still pretty good on ball the rebounding they haven't rebounded well with that group we talked about with him and wiggins and draymond together he's kind of been deployed more as an on ball stopper but you know you still hope that with that athleticism he can just do more as a help defender than he has like we've seen it at times we've seen the rebounding at times but it's not it's not something that comes naturally to him either of those things and so projecting that he's gonna be a consistent plus there it's really gonna take a lot of work from him to get to that point you brought up the point of his like his bounce and Kaminga's athleticism has been very jarring as a reminder of how unathletic the Warriors are as presently constructed where they're they're generally old but a lot of their guys they're old and they weren't super athletic in the first place that they had at their strength they think really well they have some great some of the greatest shooters of all time but having that player and at times like even though Andre Iguodala was not was not his most athletic on the Warriors that happened earlier in his career they've often had a player or two like that or you could even think about like JaVale or some of the other guys and this year's team was just devoid of athleticism and it made a world of difference one other thing to keep an eye on here as well is Brandon Pajemski has closed some games and halves over Clay Thompson lately Thompson was a miserable four of 19 a big part of them wasting that stuff performance and really had some awful shots in that Atlanta game missed a a bunch of pretty open threes that could have changed things and Thompson is better defending say power forwards and you can put Wiggins on the other team's point guard and Kaminga on the other team's small forward if you need to Uh, but if they don't have a player like that then Pajemski adding more of a a rebounding and just overall team play headiness element it wouldn't surprise me to see Pajemski t- continue to close a little bit over over Clay. They opened that Pandora's box, uh, but you know when Clay isn't playing very well, uh, it wasn't an option to not play Clay because of the Wiggins injury uh, at the end of the Hawks game. But I, I think it's we're at the point now where Clay Thompson is going to have to earn his spot in the closing group, and maybe when Chris Paul comes back, it, it could be Thompson sitting for Chris Paul uh, at times uh, as well. 
Clay Thompson below league average efficiency now, 56% on 23 usage, which is still really high when you consider what he's doing. And and Thompson's always the models have always been skeptical of his defense because he doesn't produce steals or blocks. But yeah. now, and, now and, it's and actually they, they right. They used to be wrong, but now they're right. Now they're right. And so that just puts so much team building pressure on somebody else has to do point of attack. And he's, you know, not really a ball handler at all. And so his his limitations are becoming a much more relevant challenge for the Warriors to deal with. And going into unrestricted free agency is going to be a little bit daunting for Clay. But we will close out this 15 and 60 with the Dallas Mavericks. Close out? What, we're not going to get to three hours of recording time? Come on. Well, I mean, we're at 240. <laughs> I've, I've gotten my fourth win left. here. Let's go. We're at, we're at 240 <laughs> and you still have a team left. So I'm completely <laughs> optimistic that we can get to three hours here. Um, the Mavs are 26 and 23, three and six since the last 15 and 60, though they have been extremely shorthanded. We will talk about that. Slightly negative net rating, negative 0.2 is 18th in the league. They are 11th in offense and 22nd in defense. 22nd in defense, actually, you could argue is better than I expected. We've talked about their success there. We'll talk about it a little bit now. BPI projects them to finish with 42 wins, another team in this clump, which would be competing for the eight seed in the play-in mix. Gives them basically a one in three chance of making the playoffs. And Kyrie Irving has missed six straight games with a sprained right thumb. Jason Kidd says he could be back Monday against the Embiidless Sixers. We will see later on if that ends up being the case. Mavs also potentially going to be in the market for forwards. Discussion they might be interested in Kuzma and Jeremy Grant, Dorian Finney-Smith out of Brooklyn, Andrew Wiggins. I, I I still don't see Wiggins getting traded unless it's for positive value, and I still don't think it would be. He's been better recently. But I want to focus in on Derek Lively the second and his defense. And there's talk like, oh man, he's untouchable. He's the reason Luca is going to feel better about staying. And certainly for where he was drafted as a rookie center, he's really been effective. He's been an important part of what they're doing. He's contributed to winning basketball this year, given his age and how raw he was even at Duke. Uh, That is a huge accomplishment. Are we seeing a future defensive player of the year type? I mean, what do you think when when you watch him? Does that potential come off the page? You're obviously predicting anyone to be that good as a 19-year-old other than Victor Wembanyama or Chet Holmgren is maybe going a little too far. But do you see him as potentially being close to that class? That is a lot to ask of, of Derek Lively. And when you consider, like, for a center to be there, I mean, the old archetype, but it's a, it's a real one because he probably is going to win the award this year is Rudy Gobert. And for Gobert, the, the tenets of the math problem defensively are they're good at rim protection, they're good at defensive rebounding, and they don't foul a lot. And for the Mavs, when Derek Lively's on the floor, not that he is the same kind of player, you know, the thresholds are the same, they don't foul a lot, but they're generally a pretty bad defensive rebounding team. And, and Grant Williams is like small-ish for a four, but they're not playing. And one of the challenges for them, though, is that sometimes those other guys get thrown into on-ball assignments, and so it's, you know, the, like the low man can be a little bit different. But in terms of like their rim, like the rim frequency for opponents is pretty low and the success rate is dependent. It's it's 70 percent overall in the full season when Lively's there. So I would say there's a lot to like, but defensive player of the year is a lot to ask of anybody because you think you think about the not that everyone is as good as Gobert has been, but the the one man game and and, and Derek Lively, like he hasn't quite looked like that guy to me. Yeah, I think Lively has certainly made big time strides in how hard he plays. Oh, yeah. But I don't know that he when you watch him, you don't see quite the crazy level of motor of a Gobert or a a Chet Holmgren. He doesn't come in with that reputation of being like super competitive. 
Although it was hilarious that there was a time that Rudy Gobert fell in the draft because people questioned how much he liked basketball. That's a that's one of those things that always makes it. It's like, well, is he French? Do they not speak French. Is it just the uh, the overall aloofness? Was he like eating a baguette one time and they just assumed that he like you know doesn't stay in shape? But I don't know what it was uh, about the scouts not seeing that fire in Rudy Gobert. But Lively doesn't quite strike me as that little. He also, I'm he's a little thin. Like, will he be able to get strong enough to be that level of player? The thing that really impresses me, though, is his contest percentage. 44.5% of opponent shots at the rim he contests, which is really good. Now, the percentage is not that crazy number. His opponents shoot 59% at the rim when he contests. You know, compare that to the best guys, your Nick Claxton, your Gobert, your Chats. You know, they're in the low 50s, even high 40s. So that number is not amazing, but still still early there. When you watch his blocks, I mean, some of the ones that he gets are crazy. Oh, and yeah. he can, because he has such long strides and he can just get up so high, he can wait so long to actually react to a shot. He doesn't even have to start jumping until the guy has released their shot a lot of times. Like if the guy tries to shoot it with any kind of touch, Lively can just get off, take a step, get off the ground and go get it right at the top of the square at times when guys just have no idea that he's coming. Now, will that translate into them being kind of scared of him? I mean, you noted that opponents have pretty low rim rates against Dallas. That could be an early indication of that. You don't see quite as many of the like, take it in the chest, two hands in the air, verticality plays. I think maybe in part because Lively knows that he can go get some of these blocks that I'm talking about and he doesn't want to leave his own man to come over. But there may be times when showing his body a little bit more, it could be more effective, not only as a deterrent, but also to get in the air without fouling, though he has certainly massively lowered his foul rate since his time at Duke, which is another unexpectedly positive development. Uh, So I I do, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to predict he's a future defensive player of the year but some of these blocks that he gets are ones where you're like yeah there are not many guys who could go get the you know maybe he kind of settles in as maybe more of a more of a miles turner sort of rim protector who's been around the top of the league for a long time but maybe not the absolute best three-point shooting is 0 for 2 there's talk that he could maybe become a guy who could make shots from the outside but uh he's also 31 of 57 from the foul line this season i also have no idea how he's only taken 57 free throws like getting fouled basically less than uh once per game or or less than one shooting foul per game another thing that's interesting is these 20 at 37 in the upper paint most of those are pretty close but those are like touch shots touch shots around the rim and uh so that that's to think of him as a role man and someone that maybe you can throw it to at least on the semi-short roll to make a play is encouraging last thing i wanted to add Luka Doncic is shooting 56 percent in the upper paint this year and Kyrie 52 percent and they've taken 342 shots between them from that range that's those are pretty good now I mean Luka he's just so under control like there's not many guys who you're like oh yeah you could take a floor like you don't even have to jump and like but he, his body is just so big and his deceleration is so good he's able to get enough separation on those shots and his touch is awesome uh, I mean that's I think a very very underrated part of, of what makes Luka so hard to guard is that it are we done how'd i how'd i do on that last one made it in uh 
About eight minutes. Okay, yeah, that's like kind of our goal, right? Oh, we can thank the Sixers and Joel Embiid for this podcast being as long as it is, but uh, we really enjoyed bringing it to you, and we want to thank all of you for subscribing, longtime subscribers, founding members, but also those of you who are new to the fold uh, on that 30-day free trial. And if you haven't tried that yet, you're listening on the free feed, please join us uh, because much of our coverage uh, is going to be, I won't even say behind the paywall because there's a free 30-day trial, but it will be exclusively on Dunkdown Prime, and you get so many more benefits from that as well including my discord chat at 11 o'clock on tuesday morning pacific time the one true time zone so join us there Uh, hopefully those of you who just joined up uh, will be on the discord and have your questions in by that point we'll talk to you all soon at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.